Hi, everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells. I'm Autumn. I'm joined, as always, by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. I almost didn't make that. I was drinking some tea. <laughs> I like how when I say I'm joined by Nia, you say I'm joined by Neve. And then when I say I'm joined by Neve, you say Neve. <laughs> and like, if I try to lilt it, you lilt it more. It's always funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. This is a movie podcast, specifically right now a David Lynch podcast. Um, just a reminder to any folks who maybe uh, uh, haven't listened to the last couple episodes. Um, while we are covering David Lynch, segment one will, as it always is, we're just going to talk about whatever movies we've seen. Segment two, once we start talking about this week will be Dune. Next week it'll be Blue Velvet. Once we start talking about the main movie that we are covering this time it uh, you know all bets are off for spoiler talk um we once we start talking about dune if we feel it is appropriate to spoil the very last episode of twin peaks then that's what we are going to do and if you don't want to hear twin peaks spoilers i would highly encourage you to go to audioentropy.com and uh listen to totally reprise has always been cool a twin peaks podcast where some of our friends are going through it in a non-spoilery fashion. This is a podcast for people who have seen Twin Peaks or who don't care about getting spoiled about Twin Peaks. Yeah. Not that I think we're going to spoil Twin Peaks on our Dune episode, but you never know. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably safe in this app, but I'm not making you a promise. <laughs> yeah. Just be aware when you get there. I I don't I think I forgot to do this with last episode, which sorry, that one was like a all of last week was just like a blur of podcast turnaround for me. Yeah, that um, last week was rough. Yeah, but uh, I will try to put, like, if we talk about it to a certain point in Twin Peaks or something, I'll try to, like, note that Yeah, in like, the episode description. So Yeah. So, um, yeah. I just realized that I had two other ones that I need to add here. I think I've only watched um, one movie since last time. Yeah. So... You have watched... Well, so on the topic of the the rapid turnaround, uh-huh. I, I was sick. Yes. I'm maybe better, but also, so as people know from my, my like, months of this now, I've been working with insurance trying to get approval for the inhaler that actually works the best for me that they don't want to give me uh, because they want me to use a different brand where they get kickbacks whenever I get one. Mm-hmm. Um, Capitalism. Yeah. But... Uh, I finally got approved for the inhaler. I don't have it yet, but like I, I have the pharmacy's working on getting it now for me. Um, it's still weird because I have a thing that's like connected to mail-in pharmacy stuff and they want you to always use that. Yeah. But it's actually, it seems like it would be more expensive normally if I just did that anyway. Yeah. Than if I got it every month, like at a physical pharmacy. Yeah. And if I go to a physical pharmacy, I can also do the manufacturer's coupon. So... Hopefully it'll be like $15 a month, which is not... Knock on wood. Yeah. $15 a month is a really good uh, price for being able to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. I pay that for audiobooks. Yeah. Um, The one that they had me try that was uh, $320 a month, and I did have to pay for one month of it so that I could prove that it didn't work for me. God. Was, uh, yeah. Hell nightmare. 
I may have been able to get the like price down, but I also like that would involve trying to do it through the mail order. And then I would have been like without medication for like yeah. two weeks or something. And anyway, I'm currently on the cheapest of the ones that they had me try that worked okay until I get the actual one that works. So <coughs> I may still be coughing and that was you coughing. Ironically, but, I'm coughing yeah. while you're giving your asthma update. I still have like a, like my voice just sounds different. I listen to the podcast when I'm editing them and I'm like, man, my voice is so much deeper when I'm like not <laughs> getting the stuff I need to breathe. <laughs> so. So anyway, you watched a bunch of movies. Yeah. I watched one movie. I think how you have the setup in the spreadsheet right now is going to work great. So you yeah, we can, just... Just, we can just do it this way. You want to just talk about the bullshit you've been watching? Yeah, so the big thing I did, uh, as people know who listened to last episode, I watched through half of the existing Fast Saga. Uh, that would be the Fast and the Furious, the first movie, through Fast Five. Um, this time, I watched <laughs> Fast and Furious 6 through F9, and then also, I don't have it on the spreadsheet here, but I did watch the majority of Tokyo Drift again because I got to F9 and I needed to remember why I like this series. So you really were happy with the back half of the Fast and Furious no. side. <laughs> um, <laughs> you didn't even let me finish my stupid joke. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to like pull up. So the one thing, too, that going through this process made me realize is that Fast Five is a really good movie. Uh -huh. I love Fast Five. Yeah. Um... What Fast Five sets up as this is what the series is, is what it continues with and creates the problems mm. that are going to, like, continue to push the series into what I now hate about it. Yes. Which is that Fast Five is about getting the whole gang together to do, like, a ridiculous job mm -hmm. that involves cars going fast. But the the thing that's going to be latched onto more then the this is about car stunts. The car stunts will persist except for Hobbs and Shaw, which is the fucking dog shit worst one of all of these. Um, but the car stunts will persist. But it's still primarily going to be about impossible jobs. It is about assembling the crew You're right. to do a, some sort of impossible job. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that it sets up is that that Fast Five ends with all of them having like millions of dollars. Right. They're just all millionaires now. Yeah. And so now, how do you have a series that's about, like, grounded people going through, like, normal issues after you do the heist movie? And there is a way that you can do this, which is that you just kind of keep doing an Oceans thing. Re and that would be better. Remember in the first movie when they have, like, a cookout in Vin Diesel's backyard and they, like, hang out in Ludacris's garage? Yes. That's gonna. That's going to come back, but like it feels so much more hollow. Yes, because of everything that they go through. So, um, I'm just opening up so I can try and get like a clearer sense of exactly what's what's uh, the plot of these different ones because they also kind of blur together in a way that the the first five movies didn't. They uh -huh. all have a like clear, distinct personality, yes. and like this is what's going on with them. It's part of what was like fun about the series is that each one kind of felt like its own little thing. There was this united core yes. of like driving fast, doing co cool car stunts. How that's like freeing the sense of like family that's like mm. kind of complicated and involves blood, but also like found family things like that. Slow motion um, shots of ass. 
Yes. Core. <laughs> core to the series. Uh, never really leaves, but now, in as the series goes on, it will increasingly be the slow motion shot of an ass. Uh, two people commented on it. Probably um, it'll be Tyrese and Ludacris who right. are going to comment on it as the, the two main black men in the cast. Uh-huh. And then a woman in the cast will roll their eyes about, oh, you're being so sexist. <laughs> We can't have this sexism in our movies. Right. Uh, becomes increasingly more like aware of the jokes about the series and playing into them and being like meta humor in a way that doesn't really work. Right. Meta humor can sometimes work, but I think it's like, it gets annoying really fast and a lot of this is not pulling it off. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I'm going to run through the basic plots of these. I'm going to get into like full spoiler ter- territory for Fast and the Fury. You can stop me if you don't. But also, I feel like you're, like, fine knowing this stuff because... I will... So, Molly and I watched Tokyo Drift. We skipped four because she doesn't like four. We're gonna... We watched five. I, I would so take four after over, like, eight or nine at this point. I will... I didn't I even will... mention Hobbs and Shaw because that... Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I will probably just watch whatever Molly tells me is worth watching. So, I imagine we'll watch six and seven and then probably stop would be my guess, but I don't know. Yeah. Once Paul Walker's out, you can kind of, but, and so I have a friend who thinks that like the loss of Paul Walker is the loss of the emotional core of the movies that keeps it grounded. Even as it's like becoming ridiculous. I think that this is an inevitable trajectory. If Paul Walker was still alive, he would still be in these movies and they'd still be getting worse. I believe, I believe, uh, like seven is a bad movie. I just also cry at the end when they do a Paul Walker tribute because the man's dead. <laughs> I believe in M's words, he, he is a testament to the, um, to the power of the load bearing, boring white guy in movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, like, I, I genuinely don't think that if he was still in these movies, it would save him. Mm. I think it would, I think having the chemistry between Paul Walker and, um, Vin Diesel mm-hmm. would help. It would help on the screen, but it wouldn't fix like the core issue that's happening with the series. I and I because I don't know, but I assume that as these go on, they have to anchor this more and more on Vin Diesel and The Rock because those are the two biggest stars. Yeah, and then there's the weird beef I guess that happened with Vin Diesel and The Rock. I don't well, really, I don't know this like actual story behind it, other than Vin Diesel isn't in Hobbs and Shaw, and then The Rock isn't in any of the like movie sense and even independent of their beef i just find like i don't think they had much chemistry in fast five yeah and i don't think that like i think they are both guys who like right or wrong like demand a certain amount of screen time that like doesn't work i i have watched When I was living in a dorm, I have I watched, you know, Jumanji, the 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 Rock Jumanji, yeah. Jumanji Two, Journey to the Center of the Earth, whatever that bullshit was, San Andreas. I've watched many boring The Rock vehicles, and he just like, I don't know if it's like a contractual thing or if it's a like marketing thing. But he has a certain like gravity to the film needs to revolve around me, which just doesn't work when you come in in the fifth movie as 
the bad guy. Yeah. Like it just you can't you can't reshape the and whole it, franchise around you. And it kind of works in five because he's the villain, and of course you're going to have like some focus on I mean he's yeah. not like the true villain in the end, but he is like the the primary antagonist for a lot of the movies. Yes. And that's going to work for having this like focus on him, but also being able to like not have him like in he will have his own scene. scenes and he's not going to be demanding all the other scenes because it doesn't yeah. make sense for the yeah. Yeah. And then once he's like more part of the crew, yeah, it just gets weird. Anyway. Um so Fast and Furious 6. Um Hobbs is trying to like get this uh guy named Ooh. Owen Shaw, who's like some terrorist, uh-huh. and is like, Well, I know just the gang who will be able to uh, drive real fast and do car stunts to to catch this guy. That's stupid. Uh, and so he goes and offer. He's like basically like your records are going to be cleared. You'll have amnesty. Like you're not going to go to prison for stealing millions of dollars if you help us catch this guy. Because now they also it's... have to solve the problem that exists in uh, from Fast Five, which is that. So Paul Walker was a cop, uh-huh. but. Throughout like the first five movies, there's like actually a strong anti-cop like right. bias to most of it. Yes, like most characters do not care about the cops. Paul Walker is this like cop character who who grounds to some degree and like this legitimacy, but also like the propulsion of what the story means is that actually because they've fallen into doing this like Yakuza, I have to choose the like duty to my family over the like humanity that I have. What you as the audience want is for Paul Walker to not be a cop and to right. go around with his crime brother, right. Vin Diesel. Well, and so five is like, okay, they're criminals. We have a format for like fun criminal movies. It's heist movies. They're not just criminals. They're like, international criminals. Yes. They go to Rio and steal millions of dollars and then they all leave the country. Like... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, And so like it won like Fast Five is just set up this like massive thing where like okay they just have to be like massive international criminals for this to continue. Uh-huh. I think it could, could still potentially work if it just becomes about these rich people doing ridiculous heists. I Ocean's love the Ocean got... series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we are also entering more and more into the MCU era where obviously the like, like as this goes on, there's more and more of a military focus and I'm going to get into things with this. So I was listening to Game Study Study Buddies this a yeah. lot the last few weeks and one of the books they read um, introduces the term military entertainment complex. Yes. It is really funny because... In the podcast, which is a really good podcast, if people don't listen to Game Study Study Buddies on Ranged Touch, um, I think it's a really good show and you should check it out. Um, And in the podcast, those two just throw out the term military entertainment complex and they're like, yeah, we all sort of intuitively, as people in 2022, understand what that means and like the book is not concerned with defining that, you know, it's concerned mm-hmm. with this other stuff. And I was like, wait, 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 we need to, I want, I want you all to cover like a book that is just about this. Yeah. <laughs> because like it is important. And I think a lot of people don't see it, but yes, military entertainment complex. It's a good term. I'm going to start using it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, And so in, in uh, Fast and Furious 6, 
they they do not want to have a cast that is criminals. Uh-huh. Because they they need it to continue to have this like pro cop message. Right. But they need to figure out some way to make the to fold them to not fold the rock into their crew, but mm. to essentially fold them into the rock's crew. Right. Is what they are really doing. They they I, suggested as if the rock is being folded into their family, but their family is joining like the FBI CIA. It, the other thing that's happening here that's really interesting is that the rock as as a fed for the for the US government gets to guarantee them amnesty for crimes they committed in Brazil. Yeah. And I think that's just interesting. Yeah. I, I'm not saying he can't do that. I just think, huh. We'll get to some other interesting <laughs> things. Um, so, uh, I'm, ju- I'm just like pulling up some of the, the stuff just to, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, Fast and Furious 6, they, some of this stuff I like barely remember, but I mean, it was still an entertaining movie. I enjoyed watching it, but um, yeah, they, they get the gang together. Uh, now they are trying to catch someone, uh, they're, they're working with, uh, the rock to figure out some, some of the stuff, um, and culminates in like, oh, we catch the guy, we get amnesty, Mm. all of that. Um, you, you have some fun stuff along the way. It's still an entertaining movie to watch. Right. You know, um, this is set to be the final film before Tokyo Drift. I believe it is also, I don't know exactly at what moment um, they are like aware that Justin Lin is not going to be doing this anymore. Right. But so in a post credit scene, um, Owen or Deckard Shaw, Owen Shaw's brother is like, oh, I'm going to get revenge for you. Cause like Owen Shaw's like basically comatose and probably never going to wake up again. Mm hmm. Um, and they suggest that he's going to kill Han as in Tokyo Drift. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to cause Han's death. Um, Furious 7, N- not Justin Lin anymore. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get, uh, Sung Kong paid. because uh, <laughs> that's Justin Lin's thing is getting his friend paid with the Hollywood money. So, um, they use archival footage of like, from the earlier films of Han dying in Tokyo drift. And like at the very beginning of the movie have to like quickly address the fact that they've have made Han like an important character in this franchise because Justin Lin wants to get his friend paid. Mm-hmm. And now they want to write him out of the movie. They want to catch up with to Tokyo drift where he dies. Right. Um, and so like, there's this part where like they they don't actually give the actor any space to do anything around that, but they have everyone sad that Hans di- like has died now. Um, they do get in uh, Lucas Black to play Bama Boy, notably older, to be like, oh, also when Han died, we found this necklace and it. Sorry, I I'm showing you a personal message from one of our friends to roast them. Yeah. And I realized you were in the middle of a sentence. I apologize. <laughs> we we will get to that later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so they they get in Bama Boy, 
uh, Lucas Black, who plays Bama Boy, to to give them something that they found at Han's crash site that's like ties into everything going okay. on with Deckard Shaw and everything. Yeah. Um. As the plot continues on, the focus of the movie becomes around the the gang needs to help the U.S. government get the final things that they need to put together this like they need to like find this hacker and everything to put together this thing that's going to provide what is called God's eye, which is going to allow the U S government to basically very quickly track anybody anywhere in the world through like hacking all cameras that exist in the world. And once they do this, they can find where Deckard is because otherwise he's extremely good at being stealthy because he's like a trained, uh, MI agent or whatever, mm. MI6 agent or whatever, you know, the yeah. British ones. Yeah. Who's like an assassin and went ro- rogue. Right. Um, it was like the perfect assassin and, you know, go, goes unnoticed everywhere or whatever. Uh, so they oh finally get God. it and they're able to capture Deckard Shaw. They help the U.S. government. It's so great that the U.S. government has this so that they can catch Deckard Shaw. I wish this was a video podcast so that people could see the faces I'm making right now yeah. as you... <laughs> and throughout, I'm, I'm just like... Man, I'm getting like sad about what movies are. I'm getting sad about this series. And then at the end, they do the whole tribute to Paul Walker, where um, you know they had to like do some additional stuff where they they CG'd on Paul Walker's face onto his brother's body, mm-hmm. um, driving away, going off to be a family man. Uh, everybody's extremely poignant in a way that doesn't make sense for we're just watching Paul Walker play with his like wife and kid on the beach, Mm. like the end of Manhunter. Uh, (laughs) Everyone is like extremely poignantly sad about how they're like, you know, never going to see him again, essentially, but not saying it because they can't say it because within the series, Paul Walker's character canonically does not die, which is going to get weird and funny as it goes on. Within within the canon, they're all like between movies just being like, oh, yeah, I caught up with Paul. He's doing Mm -hmm. great. (laughs) Oh, the other thing is when they finally catch him um, in seven, like, you know, as payment for all of this work and stuff. One of the things I think it's in either six or seven. Um, Dominic Trotto gets his home back. So they keep returning to like the end of the movie. will keep being in the backyard. Like they're having like the barbecue. Everyone's hanging out mm-hmm. being a family. And I'm like, I get that. Like you would be a millionaire and you'd still want your little house that you have memories at, but this is like yeah. kind of ridiculous. Also just uh, Paul Walker is just inside getting everybody beer. At <laughs> we, the barbecue. we will get to that. <laughs> No, we no. You you're kidding. We're not gonna get. To... Oh my god. The fate of the furious. So the eighth movie, F eight, fate. Get it? Yeah, I got get it. it. It's a joke. I, I, I understood. You get fate it. is like F eight. Fate. Someone someone at some point pointed out to them how there's like a different title scheme for every single one of these movies, and now they've leaned in. That's not fun anymore. Yeah, yeah. So um. Uh, Fate of the Furious, uh, so there's this cyber terrorist named Cypher who they have to stop, um, and he, get this, it turns out that there's a downside to this whole God's Eye thing where the US government can use cameras to track everyone, which is that if you have an exceptionally talented cyber terrorist, um, I believe this, I believe she's played by, um, oh, what's her name? Charlize Theron. Mm. Uh, with some, like, just ridiculous hair choices in this movie. But anyway, um, she, at the very beginning of the movie, coerces Dominic Toretto because you, this will be revealed at the end of the movie. 
Again, full spoilers. Yeah. Um, I will have like a robot voice at the beginning of this say spoilers. Yeah. Here's when the jump to, but um so the cyber terrorist coerces uh Dominic Toretto, aka Vin Diesel, because she knows that actually this one woman that he was with before the oh, I didn't bring this up previously. Uh, but so Deckard Shaw's gang, uh-huh. uh, turned out that Letty who died in like three, four, yeah. like there's the whole like thing in four with like trying to figure out how she died. I, she I didn't, didn't see actually, four. So yeah. when she, she shows up in the post credits of five and it's like, Oh my God, Letty's still alive. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I didn't know she was. <laughs> I forget if it's six or seven, but in one of them, she's in one of the Shaw brothers gangs. I think it might actually be the first one. I think it, mm. although, hey, who cares? Whatever. Cause there's a, whole, <laughs> I think it's with the first, I think it's with Owen Shaw where there's the whole thing of like, oh, they've got like a, they're basically like us. There's all these other people that are like match up to us. And then Letty is the match for, for Vin Diesel. Mm. But so she loses her memory and throughout most of these movies, she's not going to have her memory. She eventually gets them back. I forget what movie it happens in. Mm-hmm. Um, she eventually remembers in her love of Vin Diesel, <laughs> uh, that she like loves him and that they're married. Um, and then it's like, why didn't you ever tell me you were married? And Vin Diesel's like, cause you can't tell, have someone or you can't tell someone that they love you or whatever. Anyway. Um, before the, when, when he thought that Letty was dead, he had sex with another woman and had okay. a kid. Okay. And, uh, Cypher played by Charlize Theron mm-hmm. has the wife and kid. Or has the, like, girlfriend and kid. The yeah. ex-girlfriend and kid. That was, like... Uh, like, the whole part when they find out about Letty, she's like, if I found out my husband was still alive, like, I would have to go, too. Like, I understand. Mm-hmm. Go. Like, you know, I'm not gonna... I'm not gonna come in between here. Right. Um, anyway, they're kidnapped. Um, at this point, just, like, for some reason, because they're trying to get them down, uh, The Rock comes in and is like... And I've got someone else to work with us. It's Shaw. Because we just got to make him part of the gang now. Stupid. Um, this is stupid. Yeah. So the the one thing that's kind of... But uh, I'm getting ahead. Um, <laughs> so again, this cyber terrorist has hacked in and now has control of God's Eye. And so they have to like figure out how to get uh, God's Eye back. Mm-hmm. This is the whole thing. Um, there's a bunch of plot. Uh, at some point, another hacker lady has come in. There's so much shit going on in this series at this point. The the big thing, this is the thing that I need you to know about this movie. Okay. Is that the end... Which one is this? Fate? Or... Fate. Okay. Deckard Shaw is brought in to, like, his task in the, like, big final thing where they're doing all their plans to get God's eye back so the U.S. government can continue to hack into all cameras across the globe to track any terrorist (laughs) anywhere. As we know, it's fine when America does it. It's bad if they got hacked. Yeah. Um, So anyway, uh, Deckard Shaw's job is to take care of the baby. So you get lots of stunts of, like, the baby with, like, sound-canceling headphones. Um playing i forget what song it was it was like some song that oh it was alvin and the chipmunks uh-huh alvin and the chipmunks um it was one of those where i'm like this feel i guess they did that alvin and the chipmunks movie uh-huh. but this feels outdated yeah i guess that makes sense for shaw that he would be like what do you want to listen to alvin and the chipmunks but anyway 
Um, but it's not even, it's not like, cause it can't be, it's not Robbie hood. Like, no, it's not like actual funny, like action star has to take care of a baby while doing stunts. Cause all of the stunts are just CG nonsense at this point. I have enjoyed my, uh, my share of Jason Statham pictures over the years, but he's not like charismatic. Jason Statham has to take care of a baby to get him to safety is going to one is just going to be primarily about the baby being involved in dangerous stunts for a little bit as he tries to get the baby to safety. Uh And it's not going to have any of the moments where Jason Statham has to be a parent, like a parent to this child. Yes. Which is the core of what's actually great about Robbie hood. Yeah. Is not only that you have stunts where a baby is like in mortal danger constantly in that movie. And the, the baby does get like, a car jump starting its heart at the end. May I- but that you also have segments of Jackie Chan and his like weird, also criminal friend going to the baby store to buy stuff to take care of a baby and then people thinking that they're a gay couple. We haven't mentioned this in a little while. Um if you're new around here, um, we love Jackie Chan. Uh, that one has come up pretty recently. Yeah. Um one of our favorite movies is a mid-2000s Jackie Chan movie called Robbie Hood or Robin B. Hood or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Just look up Jackie Chan baby movie 2000s. You'll find them. I mean, if you do like Rob B. Hood or Robin B. Hood, either will work. Um, That movie's fucking incredible. (laughs) Jackie Chan puts jumper cables on a baby. (laughs) And that's not even the craziest shit that happens in that movie. Yeah. The thing that's still the my favorite part of it is that like it's such a weird blend of what you expect from like it's Hong Kong action uh-huh. and there's stuff that you feel like only a Hong Kong Jackie Chan movie would do with a baby. Uh huh. But also the premise of Jackie Chan has to take care of a baby. Yeah. Is such an American Jackie Chan movie premise. Uh huh. And it has that like perfect blend of both of those styles. Right. Also, it's got way too much plot, but yeah. I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. The movie does not need to. The movie does not need to be two and a half hours, but I still love it. Whereas, like most movies that are too long, I'm like, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I'm like, no, Robin B. Hood is better because it's too long and a little boring at parts. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so anyway, also throughout all of Fate of the Fury, there's parts where they're like, do we need to get Paul in on here? And they're like, no, we don't want to bother him. He's being a family man with his son. Yeah, or his, his daughter or what I don't remember that's, if he has a son or daughter. That's dumb. Yeah. And, they have wanna, to and his rem- wife, Mia. That they have to keep reminding you he's alive is stupid. Yes. Um I understand why you don't want to have him die when he's dead in the movie where he died. I was skimming Wikipedia and apparently they originally wrote it so that he was gonna die in that movie and then had to change it so that he lives. Because it was, like, way too dark if he died in the movie and in real life. Yeah. Like, I understand how you get into this weird bind. Yeah. But also, at a certain point, it's just, like, just, like, do something else. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway. um, Hobbs and Shaw is so bad. So, you know... You know how this has become a series around, like, a cast of characters who you care about? Right. Um, including ones who've gone way back. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just like 20 years. Yeah. 
you have this like deep connection to like right. a lot of these characters, even if like th- some of them aren't that great. You still get kind of excited when you see like Ludacris as Tej. I always get excited when I see Ludacris yes. in any context. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say Luda. So, and then you know how it's grown and they've added in these other characters that you don't really care about, but because the series has gotten so big, they have big action stars, right. Dwayne The Rock Johnson and uh, Jason, Jason Statham, Statham yeah. playing them. What if instead of taking all the other characters that you really care about and like the, some of the core themes that about family that were once like kind of interesting and now has become everybody's starting to get a kid. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's like kind of lost an actual like interesting interrogation of what family means or anything like that. Because all of that was like accidentally happenstance as a part of the series that yeah. just like is a fun, interesting thing to think about, but that they weren't like really intending to do. Mm-hmm. But now they're trying to actually do it, which means they're doing a worse job. Yeah. Well, instead, you're just going to take those two guys, those two new guys that you don't really care that much about, and sometimes <laughs> we'll just kind of show up for a scene, and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess Hobbs is in this one, too, for some reason. Um, we're going to make a really, really big deal about uh, Hobbs and his daughter, because we need to have family in here somehow. So we got to, like, get his daughter in here a bunch. Um, all this shit happens. <sighs> That's dumb. But the worst thing about it is... So, two things. One, Idris Elba comes in as the main antagonist. Mm-hmm. At this point, the series is... God's Eye has become a, like a, a key part of the series. No. And so, Idris Elba is a, a man who has been like engineered by a like robot cult to be the ultimate human. So the very beginning of the movie is like him coming in and then he like looks and with his eyes, he's seeing the exact percentage and the trajectories of where all the bolts would be so that he can move super fast to do like these, you know, take everyone down uh, as he's trying to attack this, this like truck or whatever, which is parked. Please. The truck is parked. It's just a bunch of people with guns that he's taking down. I want to be clear about that. The cars, the truck is not doing any stunts at all throughout this. I want to be clear. And then there's a part where they shoot at him and he just puts his hand out and the bullets, like he stops the bullets with his hand. He's just a super villain. I also think... It's just, it's fully the MCU at that point. I also think that um, Idris Elba is the perfect man, but I, this is stupid. Yeah. So anyway... Yeah, and then it just, it's like, it is basically a, you know how the, you would watch the Avengers, and then there's going to be like Ant-Man and Wasp or whatever. Uh-huh. Wasp Girl, I forget her name. The Wasp. The Wasp. Okay. The yeah. Wasp. Um, So this is like, yeah, you know those two characters that we haven't really developed enough, and then in an MCU they would have introduced them as their own movie first? Yeah. Well, we're going to give them their own movie where they fight against a supervillain. Uh, who again is engineered by a robo call uh, that's like dedicated to computers and can seemingly like instantly control the media to say anything they want. It's just so like off the rails of what, like I went back and watched Tokyo Drift and I was like, this is about a high schooler who gets in trouble. Yeah. Racing at multiple schools and then has to go to, his dad or uncle or whatever. It's kind of unclear still as someone who's watched that movie many times. I always think it's uncle, but then there is a part where he says dad on the phone. And I don't know if that's a, like, 
You're not really my dad, but I'm saying dad. I just think it's his dad. Because then he says that he's not an army brat, but if he was the son of an, uh, like, army man, he would be, by definition, an army brat. I guess so. Anyway. I think, I think what he's doing is he's distinguishing, I'm not an army brat because I didn't grow up in Japan. Mm. My my dad is just here and I'm living with my dad right now. But, yeah. Which I would say you're still an army brat then. Yeah. Anyway, none of this is what I care about. But it is like, they do sick races. They do sick races. And it's mostly about them doing sick races. And what's so beautiful about Tokyo Drift is every single other one of these movies, they're going to have cool car tricks and stunts and stuff. All of them are going to be high-speed chases where they're trying to, like, get things on and off of cars and, like, people are jumping around on them. Because when your whole stick is that the car goes fast, Mm -hmm. you just have to do other shit. Because you can't just show cars going fast for a long time Mm -hmm. and then make it, like, consistently entertaining. Whereas when you just have cars drift, drifting itself is so cool. Yeah. (laughs) That that is enough. It It can maintain the entire beautifully 90 minute movie or whatever Tokyo Drift is. It might be a little over 90, but it's it's such a perfect... Anyway, Hobbs and Shaw's bad. Also, it ends with this whole thing where, like, somehow Hobbs, the Rock's character, is also connected to this, like, robo-cult but doesn't know why, and it's all setting up that there's going to be more with this. Um, it's, like, the most skippable. Mm. Even though it seems like they're setting up something that's supposed to be really important for the series, but I doubt it will be because they're supposed to end it with the two ten movies. Because it's going to be like Fast X and whatever they Fast X two. They're doing a Final Fantasy. <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if Wait, they did it? Wouldn't it be funny if they did it Fast and the Furious X and Fast and the Furious X two? And so then it was uh, FFX and FFX two. That would be so much funnier than calling it Fast X. Missed opportunity there, Fast Saga. <laughs> so, they're ending the Fast and the Furious movie series? I think so. I think that the 10th, which I think they did break into, is supposed to be the end. I guess that makes sense. I guess if, like, people's contracts are up, like... They might try to do other stuff with this, but, like... I mean, I it's been going in a sort of semi-unbroken chain for 20 years, I wouldn't blame them for being like, ah, let's give this IP a rest and then reboot it in five years. Oh, one other thing with Hobbs and Shaw. Uh-huh. So there's a part where uh, they end up going to Samoa because mm-hmm. the uh, Hobbs, um, the Rock's character, is like going to get help from his family or whatever because we have to make it about family. Of course. Um, And the, the mom is kind of charming. I was like a little bit you know, feel mm. starting to be like, oh, maybe this is a one star movie and not a half star movie for me. Uh huh. And then I realized the reason why they had set all of this up is so that they would then open up the weapons and be like, you got rid of all the guns. And she'd be like, yeah, I like decided I hate guns. All we have are all these traditional Samoan weapons that are like melee weapons. And they're like, what will that do against the guns? Oh, wait, since this is a weird robo cult, they have guns that have chips like where you can't fire them unless you have the chips. And so if we do like a blocker thingy, like if we do like a, I don't know if it's EMP or whatever, I forget the actual explanation of what they're doing, but then the guns will go offline and they can't shoot them and then they'll have to melee with us. And so all, 
all of it becomes a setup for a thing that it, throughout all of this has been beautiful about the Fast series in comparison to the MCU, even as I'm getting madder and madder about the state of modern Hollywood blockbusters, is that having cars means fundamentally you don't have two groups of people run across a field at each other. This movie ends with two groups of people running across a field at each other to get into a melee fight. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> Uh, anyway, F9. Um, I like I this one. I thought you were l- fucking done. I like this one a little bit more than Hobbs and Shaw. I thought um, you were done. <laughs> it was, like, similar to Fate to me, in terms of, um, so, I said very early on to you, um, like, as a, like, I think, like, after I watched Fast Five or something, I was like, wait, Justin Lin loves pudding. Han mm-hmm. in his movies. He loves getting his boy Sung Kang paid. Yeah. When he comes back, I know, I right. know because I've seen up to that point that he is going to die as soon as Justin Lin exits. Right. They are going to catch it up and he's going to be dead. However, we are existing in the series where Letty died and then came back. Justin Lin is going to bring his boy back. And I was right. <laughs> and it did make me like this movie a little bit more. But they did have to give him a daughter, of course. Of Th- course. This time it's an adoptive daughter so that they can now have a teen daughter on the cast. Oh, God. Um, oh, also the... Uh, so... Dom... I think it's Dom. Vin Diesel names his kid Brian. Which again is a decision that makes more sense if the man is dead. People, you know? people name their kids after alive people all the time. I know, but it, like the the way that they talk about it, like the way that they say I'm naming him Brian, and the way that people react makes sense when you know that Paul Walker is dead. Uh huh. But in the canon universe, where Brian is just at home with his kids. Not going on weird weird adventures with you. Right. Having everyone react that way about like, that is such a good name to give your child. Uh-huh. That's a really meaningful and like special and moving name yeah. to give your child. Is a yeah, little I weird. called him and he told me it was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just off screen. Like when, when there was the scene about like, I decided to name him Brian. I'm like, wait, did I miss a part where they decided that like Paul Walker's character is actually dead <laughs> because of the way that everyone was reacting. And I was like, no. No, they're just trying to make me feel sad again about how Paul Walker, the actual man, is dead, which I'm already sad about, but you did a better job of it in the seven. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, a bunch of more dumb shit happens. Yeah. Uh, they do bring in Bama Boy and Bow Wow mm-hmm. and also another guy who is someone who again has watched Tokyo Drift a bunch. I was like. Was he in Tokyo Drift or is he in, did they just find like another Asian actor to be a part of the crew? <laughs> then I, when I did go back and rewatch Tokyo Drift, I'm like, oh no, he is there. Okay. He's actually in it. But anyway, um, yeah, so they, the three of them, there's a part where Vin Diesel's like, oh, I have some friends in, uh, in Germany. And so... The day that I was watching these movies, I hadn't gotten to F9 yet, but I talked to my boss, who turns out is also a big fan of Fast and Furious series and also feels similarly about the traje- trajectory of the series. And he was like, yeah, 
Uh, F9 is extremely a, uh, we have people who are like big names now and we're just going to put them in like scenic locations. Mm -hmm. But in a way where it's so obviously that where when they said we're going to Germany, I was like, Germany, why? (laughs) But anyway, they go to Germany and there they find Bama Boy, Bow Wow, and uh, this other guy. Why are they in Germany? Uh, Because there's a, like, test course in Germany, so they show you the actual test course. And what they've done is they've put a jet engine on the back of a car. This is going to come up later. I think the ideal turn for (coughs) Bama Boy is that, like, they catch up with him and he's just like, yeah, dude, I race NASCAR now. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so the the thing that makes F9 also kind of work for me is that they start doing some backstory for Dominic Toretto, Uh which is it starts with, uh, like, NASCAR race or... Uh, F1 or something. Yeah. I think it's NASCAR. Um, and, uh, you know, it starts with you see driving and it says Toretto on the helmet and you're like, oh, it's Dominic. And then he takes it off and you're like, oh, who's that? Turns out it's his dad. We're back in the past. This right. is when his dad died. His dad died in a race. Uh, and like Dominic, Vin Diesel, believes that his brother killed his dad by like doing something because when he's in prison and working on cars, some people explain like, oh, the way that this is set up, they would like make it explode. And then he realizes like, oh, that actually is probably what happened to my dad uh-huh. or whatever. Um, the reason why Vin Diesel is in prison is because he beat up the the other racer who was driving dangerously and got his dad killed. And then while in prison, it's like, oh, I think my brother was responsible. Um, his brother is played by... Um, John Cena. Um, yeah, it's kind of an odd choice. <laughs> and they like continually like reference how like you look really similar, but your jawline's so distinctive. I didn't know that there was a bit of like Nordic strain in your bloodline. It's like bizarre. Anyway, okay. Um, John Cena is the main villain uh, through most of the movie. Uh, but so some of the stuff where they are going back, and it's just like, no, this is like about a like two brothers who get into like a. a like who end up hating each other and like becoming like ostracized from each other Mm -hmm. because of the death of their dad. I'm like, man, remember when fast and the furious was like about something other than superheroes. Anyway, don't worry. Most of this movie is about superheroes. (laughs) Um, there's, there's lots of, so some of the stuff is fun and I enjoy it. Some of the stuff, like I feel like compared to fate, there are higher highs, but also lower lows. I got extremely annoyed at the scene where Tyrese is like uh, talking to um, who plays the the other hacker in uh, I think it's seven, and then she joins the crew. Um, I'm just trying to double check. I don't Ronda I, Rousey, oh, uh, Natalie Emanuel. Um, who is Ramsey, who's this hacker who they get to help with God's eye stuff. Anyway, um, so it's like Ramsey, uh, then, um, Tyrese and Ludacris. And Mm -hmm. Tyrese is like, have you noticed we've been like going through just increasingly ridiculous stunts, um, like every job we do becomes more impossible than the next. And none of us like even have a scar. Mm -hmm. Like, 
literally the the shit that we just got into like literally moments ago i got shot multiple times where i have a bunch of holes in my jacket and i don't have any bullets in my body uh and then uh ramsey and Ludacris's character tej are mm-hmm. like oh like talking about hypotheses and like theories and like oh when you have like evidence mounting up then it like you you begin to build a theory uh and it becomes less and less likely that like the alternative is true. And so what it seems to be is that we are actually immortal. We are immortal people. Mm. Then it turns out that they're just joking on Tyrese because Tyrese is so stupid. He's just become the, the clown character who everyone clowns on constantly. The movie is becoming increasingly about Tyrese being the stupid clown character. Because uh, of course we're just normal people. This annoyed me, and then it's going to come back. I've brought up the two important things for when it comes back. Um, I want anyway, they <laughs> they go through the whole. There's a whole. There's more shit happening. It's more superhero shit. They're fighting another supervillain in the form of John Cena, but then it ends up that Vin Diesel and John Cena get back together as you know brothers. Uh, brothers. Oink. Uh, you know, Vin Diesel is able to finally forgive John Cena for the death of his father and realizes that John Cena, while he did make the like alterations to the car, it was because the dad was trying to throw the race. And then he didn't know that like the alterations his dad was going to do was, were going to be so dangerous and could result in that kind of fatality. Right. Uh, and so he's also felt broken up about the death of his dad and has been trying to deal with the like weight of responsibility. And then also, as it is pointed out, Vin Diesel has done the the most hurtful thing that you can ever do to a Toretto, which is to cut them off from their family. Because <laughs> <coughs> it's about family. Shut the fuck know? up. That's why they're brothers. Shut the fuck up. That's why the main villain is the shut brother the, of, shut the of Vin Diesel. Up. Shut the fuck up. It's because it's about brothers. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> anyway, as part of the whole big thing. No! So there's another person who they're trying to, to they end up, uh, the John Cena ends up turning on the person who's been working with and ends I up helping know. out the crew. <laughs> but as part of the plan, um, Tyrese and Ludacris are in space in the car that Bama Boy and Bow Wow built Shut that has the jet engine up. on the back. And they're supposed to, there's these, so the other thing that happens in this is there's been increasingly like, so when the hacker hacks into God's eye, she's also able to hack into all of the, the self-driving cars. And so you just get like waves of cars coming after people. I'm never letting you watch um, a movie again. So, but in, so in this one, they have this magnet technology so they can like push cars away or pull cars towards them. Cause again, it's all about superpowers but they've put magnets on the bottom of the car that is in space that has the jet engine on it. And what they're supposed to do is turn on the magnet and it's going to fry the satellite. And then they will use the jet engine to like launch back home and then like, you know, do a, (laughs) do a parachute, but they're sitting up there and they realize that the way that they launched, it actually caused damage to the magnets. And so they can't take out the satellite. And then Tyrese is like, I've been thinking about what you were talking about, Tej, with us being immortal. And, like, maybe we are just human beings. But also, it's incredible that we've made it this far, that we've done all of this stuff. Like, in order to save the world, we need to destroy the satellite. And so, if you're correct, and we are just mortal and this is impossible. There's no way that we would get home. There's no way we would be saved. Crashing the satellite would probably kill us. 
like let's you know isn't that just like a a way to go out like i the way that i want to die is on top of the world look at us we're in space we're looking down on the world as like two black men who managed to go to space isn't that incredible and if you if i'm correct and we're immortal then like why don't we test out that theory one more time and taz just finally like you're correct and so they they shoot the with the jet engine they shoot through the satellite and then they survive, and a Chinese satellite picks them up, finds them and picks them up, and is like, is that a car? Why do they look like minions? Because now they're making increasingly uh, often references to things like Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Minions, Game of Thrones, Star Wars. There's a whole thing about like the construction of plots that when the person goes to. When do we get to talk about to. Dune? Anyway. <laughs> Here's the thing that I really wanted to get to at the end. Okay. I was mad at all of that stuff. And then here's the thing that I, I need you to know. Because the movie ends okay. with a with a barbecue <laughs> in Dominic Toretto's backyard. <laughs> Throughout this, Mia has shown up because Mia has teamed up with Han and is helping out. Mm-hmm. Mia being uh, the... the the you wife know, yeah the wife of brian of paul right. walker and the sister of dominic toretto because yes. we need to get her in as the sister to be the one who's like part of this whole sibling thing that's going on yeah because it's the three of them we need that emotional core for some reason she just shows up without her husband in tokyo to help out for some Reasons? reason and somebody had to, to stay home and someone, take care of the kids someone had to go to tokyo to talk to people about han and then just happened to find the exact house where Han lived, where his sister is currently living, because they they noticed that there's a Mexican flag in the window, and they're like, didn't Han always say that, like, Tokyo is his Mexico? Like, in the old Westerns, outlaws would always run away to Mexico, and for him, it's Tokyo. Look, there's a Mexican window, and then, of course, at that exact moment, some people come in and attack and there's an action scene and then they save the daughter and then they're about to be killed by the people. But then Han has a sniper rifle and they're like, who saved us? It's Han anyway. And then Han joins in and it's a part of the movie. And it's great because he he has short hair now, but he's still hot. Yeah. He's still hot. Yeah. He's never been as hot as Tokyo Drift, but he's still hot. Yeah. Um, Incredible how much better uh, Sung Kang has aged compared to, to Lucas Black. <laughs> so much better. Lucas Black is like again supposed to be like maybe in his twenties now, just balding wrinkles. <laughs> oh, he's an old man. <laughs> anyway, they're there at the barbecue. Of course, Mia's here. Everybody here. The the son who we've named Brian, mm-hmm. importantly, poignantly, is going to say <laughs> grace. They go. It's time to say grace, but there's a chair missing. There's a there's an empty chair. <laughs> the the sad empty chair. Oh, what's that? We hear a car approaching. You see the car pulling in. Brian's coming in. <laughs> <laughs> Brian was just out. He was just he was just grabbing some beers. He was just He'll grabbing, be right here. He was just grabbing some beers and going for a little joyride. You think this? Do you think that at any point in this series, uh, they're gonna make a joke about like, oh, Brian just went out to buy cigarettes. He'll be right back. <laughs> anyway um i hate it the mcu has ruined everything i love that's not true but i i just miss what blockbusters used to be yeah i miss it so much it's interesting and because going through this series has been like me in real time seeing how blockbusters have changed yeah 
And like getting this confirmation for me that like truly just like what the MCU is has changed what like Hollywood cinema is. Yes. In a way that has like made it lifeless and joyless. Yes. Because this is a series that I have so much affection for in the way that I don't have affection for Cape Comics. Right. Me being like, I'm not into any of these superheroes in a way that can pull me through except for maybe Spider-Man. And most of that's based off the Raimi movies. Mm-hmm. So, but just doing this for like, I have genuinely one of my favorite, I just want to watch a stupid action movie is Tokyo Drift. Yeah. I love Tokyo Drift. I've seen it so many times. Well, and then... <sighs> This is this is me, my bias, my nostalgia, right? Yeah. I genuinely think that like the late 90s, early 2000s, like let's say like 1995 to 2005 is like the best time for like the blockbuster movie, you know? I think there's like been other great times. Like yeah, the eighties sure. has some great blockbusters too. That's but. not a thing that I have any nostalgia for, you know? Yeah. So like you're correct. They put out the Terminator in the eighties and that movie fucking rocks. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but like, especially once you get into the 2010s, like, but, but so, so like, it's really sad to see like, Oh, you got out of that 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 one time frame that Autumn really likes, and it just takes a dip in quality. Even like Fast Five, a really good one of these MCU movies, still has the problems that the MCU shit has. Yeah, but in a way that the MCU also has not like congealed and solidified into the thing that it is, uh-huh. and so this is still allowed to be kind of weird and uh-huh. fun. Whereas, like, then it ju- it just can't from here yeah you know um anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna run through some stairwells ratings uh f6 i think f so for for uh fast and furious 6 uh fate of the furious and fast and the furious presents hobbs and shaw i think f i don't really remember stairs um furious 7 uh gotta be because there is a part where paul walker has to like climb up a, a tower to basically like reactivate a cell tower to mm-hmm. help with the hacking. Uh, and so you get a bunch of him like trying to get up all the stairs. And then there's a part where he gets to the top and then a guy like who's guarding it jumps on him and they slide down like an extremely long staircase. That's just a funny bit because you've just seen him like running up <laughs> that staircase and like other things and like trying to get around to just like have him immediately get set back. Um, that was worth a B to me. Yeah, sure. I'm being a little bit generous there, but I mean, I miss him, so. Sure. Uh, and then a D for, for F9, because there were a lot of stairs. They just but, like good. None of them were like, like some of them were like beautiful and ornate, but none of them are like used uh-huh. in the movie. You know, there's a part in, in uh, Furious 7 where they jump through three towers and in the last tower there's a bunch of terracotta warriors and they just crash through a bunch of them and it's so funny to me having gone and seen all the terracotta warriors anyway (laughs) i watched a movie too (laughs) (laughs) i feel like this is like me ranting about uh the the twilight movies but like more angry 
Also, you summarized way more plot. <laughs> In fairness, there is way more plot. Did I need to know it? Don't <laughs> know. Anyway. I think it's important to know the the ways that this has become superhero cops. Sure. This has become the FBI and the CIA are fundamentally good, and your criminal heroes who you loved are now just a part of it. So I watched... So yesterday, I was wanting to watch a movie. Uh, I hopped on Criterion. I went to the horror selection. I just clicked on the first Japanese movie I saw, um, because this is what I'm like. Um... So I watched uh, Jigoku, which is a sort of uh, cult classic, I think. Um, yeah. Was not well seen uh, when it came out, but um, seems like it is known now if you like old Japanese movies or Japanese horror movies. People know about Jigoku. Um, for people who maybe are not familiar. Comes out in 1960. It is uh, Jigoku translates to hell, and it is a movie about, like hell basically um there's like so like the first five minutes are like this weird montage of images that don't really make sense and then that just abruptly stops and you get like an hour ish of plot um and that plot is actually like kind of interesting i think um lots of cool stuff happening there i don't want to go super in depth because there's a chance that i just like pick this movie for stairwells next year at some point yeah um or maybe i'll go in depth in a minute i don't know but i summarizing right now so the plot happens there's a guy he's like he's like a you know this sort of ideal like young japanese man he's like going to college and he's getting his degree and he's marrying the professor's daughter and they're having a nice wholesome marriage and he's going to become a, a professor someday, too. And it's all good. Um, and he has this friend? Question mark? This man just shows up. He's a, So the, the main guy, whose name I'm forgetting, goes, goes to like the professor's house and is like, I'd like to take your daughter's hand in marriage. And the professor is like, yes, of course, we will do this. And it's like very nice. And then this other guy named uh, Tamura, who will, you might recognize this actor for one day playing the evil uncle in, um, like, like Sadako's uncle in um, The Ring Ring. from 1998. (laughs) So just spends 40 years, I guess, playing evil guys. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) Um, so he just like walks into their house uninvited and is like I have ill omens for everybody (laughs) (laughs) and then the main guy whose name I cannot remember um, he's like you need a ride home and (laughs) the guy the other guy's like no I can just walk he's like no you need a ride home (laughs) and so he's like okay and he gets in the car and they like run over a Yakuza just like a random Yakuza who's like drunk in the street uh, they do a hit and run, and basically from here, an hour of plot ensues of, like, you know, the main guy um, keeps being, like, 
around when other people die. Like, he's not driving the car when Tamura hits the Yakuza. And he's not holding the knife when someone else gets stabbed, but he is there. Or, like, this this one woman is like, you killed my brother. You were in the car um, when um, my brother died. I'm going to get revenge on you. And so she's, like, on this rope bridge having this dramatic showdown with the main guy and then just trips and falls off the rope bridge. And, like, the guy didn't push her. It's not his fault that she died. He's just around when these people die. There's a lot of plot. There's a lot of plot. There's a lot of plot. Um, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> because then, an hour into the movie, everyone dies. And I mean, like, everyone. Um, <clears throat> this movie... Um, the easiest, like, reference point that I have for it is, like, the way that, like, a Stephen King book will have, like, three main characters, and those all those people all get, like, two traits, and then there's, like, 40 other characters that all get, like, one trait, like Yakuza, drunk, sick mom, neighbor, all those people, the three main people, the other 40 fucking people in this movie, fucking everybody dies. <laughs> For... <laughs> reasons that are like kind of vague doesn't matter because at that moment they all go to hell <laughs> and it's miserable the main guy is like hung upside down with a sword through his neck and the king of hell is like i have pronounced judgment on you you will go to the river <laughs> and they all go to the river and he's like you are thirsty. You may drink from the river. It is all your piss and shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Tamura is like, I was secretly the devil the whole time. And everybody's like, yeah, we knew. Um, and then like the main guy, he was like involved with that girl. And secretly they were fucking the whole time. <gasps> And so it wasn't the perfect, wholesome, like, marriage and, like, this, you know, because because they were fucking and <gasps> she was pregnant when she died. Oh, so no. So now he has, like, a tiny little bit, bit of plot in hell where he's trying to find the baby that died. Um, but then after she died, he goes home and he meets this girl who is played by the same actress and he, like, falls for her, too. But then it's revealed that that was secretly his sister because his mom was secretly cheating with the painter. <laughs> the movie, it's stupid. None of this matters because what the movie is actually about is images. Yeah. <laughs> because it's fucking sick as shit when, like, you get, like, the river and then, like, the river into hell and then, like, the whole screen is black except for, like, there's red clouds, like, across the sky, and it's all, like, on this soundstage. Or, like, the final image of the movie is, like, the main guy is clinging to the wheel of Dharma that is spinning around like a teacup ride at Disneyland, and his baby is on the opposite side of the wheel, and he's trying to, like, climb up the spinning wheel of Dharma, and it's all symbolic, and you you get it. <laughs> yeah. He's never going to catch up with the baby. Um... And even before that, like, 
in the alive sections, it's still just about images because like the main girl had this pink umbrella and then it's all about like this sort of like virginal like innocence, but then all the secrets are revealed and the pink umbrella keeps showing up in like, oh, that character is not like virginal and innocent. Now the pink umbrella represents the loss of innocence. Oh, and this character has a red umbrella and it's all about like the lust he feels and yeah. it's it's stupid. Because it, it's just images. You're just looking at images for an hour and 40 minutes, and it's one of the best fucking movies I've ever fucking seen. <laughs> uh, films are images in sequence, one after another, sometimes accompanied by sound. That's so true. <laughs> I got one of my favorite parts of this movie. So, like, the it starts in Tokyo, and he's going to, like, the school, and there's the professor and stuff. And then, like, his mom gets sick and he goes back to his home in like this rural part of Japan. And most of this, um, almost all this movie is shot on a soundstage. And so we need to like illustrate that this is like rural Japan without going to rural Japan. (laughs) Yeah. And so what do we do? We just made a cool looking tree and there's just this like, long slow shot of a cool looking tree and i thought that shit was sick because i think it's cool when you get a lingering shot of a cool tree (laughs) yeah it's also funny because all the like quote-unquote japanese countryside images are 100 percent like they're very like pale and washed out because this is a movie about hell and depression and oh what if get this what if hell is being alive hmm um, but if you turned the saturation up on all these images by like 20%, you just, you're now making pastoral to die in the country. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I thought Jigoku was fucking sick as shit. Um, I thought all the stuff when they're alive is, I thought it was going to be like a really boring movie for an hour and then they were going to go to hell and it was going to get interesting. And I was thoroughly happy with all the sort of like, Weird plot stuff, weird thematic stuff, weird images that the sh- the movie is just throwing at you. And this sort of recognition that, like, film images so often are used to, as answers, you know? And, yeah. and this is sort of, like, film images are, like, questions and... and What's this character thinking? Why is this visual recurring? Why is, like, what does this visual mean? What does, um, how has that meaning changed? You know, all these sorts of things. I just, I thought it was so fucking cool. It's just, like, swinging for the fences constantly in, like, the coolest way. Um, really fucking good movie. And just, like, yeah, just... You you had spent the whole week complaining to me about Fast and Furious, and then I just watched a movie that was like, ah, yes, the potentiality of cinema as an art form. Yeah. Um. Anyway, F for stairs. No stairs in the movie. There's there is one staircase. Um. As the main guy is like entering his home, but it's like, here's his front door, stairs, and then the um, his apartment. But the camera is sitting at the top of the stairs, and you just see him, and so you don't actually get any of the stairs in the shot, <laughs> because it's like looking down at a certain angle where you just don't see the stairs, and it's also yeah. not important. It's just a guy walking up some stairs, you know. Yeah. 
So, F for stairs. Uh, a plus for movie. Fantastic movie. Um, you watched some of David Lynch's short films. Yeah, <clears throat> which I guess this will kind of be the the at this point, uh, you know, potential spo- potential spoilers. Yeah. Um, specifically, I'll probably very vaguely talk about stuff in Twin Peaks. So, um. I watched two. These are the last two that I wanted to watch that all these predated Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pulling up right now while you were talking. Um, let, me, let me sort this by the uh, release order. Because uh, I think, just so people like are aware, yeah, I think when we go into... It might be Blue Velvet or it might be the beginning of Twin Peaks. I'll, I'll debate. But um, there are two ones, The Cowboy and the Frenchman and... Um, the French as seen by dot, dot, dot. Um, and I'm probably going to try and watch both of those sometime. They, they came out between uh, Blue Velvet and then uh, Twin Peaks. So Okay. I think there's a couple other things I'm going to try and check out that um, aren't like shorts of his, but are related to David Lynch from around this time. But okay. um, we'll get to it when we get to it. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to know. I'm going to try and like watch shorts around when they came out in terms of our watching through. Uh, but I wanted to, to finally catch up with these shorts from before Eraserhead. Um, the longest of his shorts, I think, well, the ex- early experiments is similar length or maybe longer, but it's also just such a different thing because it's just experimenting with like images. Mm. Um, whereas the grandmother is like a half hour and it has plot. Mm. Um, so, it there's like some stuff that is uh actors and most of them have like it seems like they have like white powder on their face to like really accentuate the black and white mm-hmm. um but like in a way where like i don't think he's just like intensifying that i think he's like specifically getting that fa- effect through like white powder on the face mm-hmm. um but so there's a a little kid a mom and a dad and then there will eventually be a grandma and it's in kind of this like vague dark space but where there's like home furniture all uh-huh. of that stuff um there's also some of this animation that's some of the stuff that's been in the other shorts that i watched um and so it starts with the animation where this like man and woman sort of grow up weirdly out of the ground. Um, you get a lot of it of like the drawn animation kind of style until it then gets to going out of the actual ground. And then it cuts to footage of like weird uh, pixelation, which is when you do stop motion with human bodies mm-hmm. of them, like shunting out of the earth, like wiggling around. Right. Um, but behaving strangely. Uh, and then it shows like down below, like, Oh, from the man and the woman, there's like white and red, and then it mixes together, and you get this like wed, uh, white circle with like the red, like almost like bloodshot eye sort of pattern in it. And then from that comes out this child, and that's like the son. Um, and then the dad like is acting all weird and like jumps on the child to like attack him or something. And then it cuts to you, oh, here, the, the kid who's this like, you know, I would say like at least 10 or something, Mm -hmm. uh, wearing like a bow tie throughout all of it. Um, uh, wakes up in bed. Uh, there's like, has peed the bed, Mm -hmm. but it's like a, just like a yellow, like a cloth that has been laid down. That's like a puddle shape. Um, this will continue to like recur throughout. Um, and then the dad comes in, finds it. And then like, 
you know, grabs the kid forcefully and is like shoving his face down in it and stuff. Um, you know, like in stuff that's like evoking child abuse, but also the actor, it's not like they're not doing it with the actual kid, but then you'll get like freeze frames of like, ah, over it, you know, to like further suggest what's happening. Um, and so then the kid goes and walks upstairs, Mm. stairs. Mm. to uh, another bedroom that just has a bed in the the middle and there's like a thing of seeds and goes and is looking through all the seeds and finds what like looks like just like a giant rock, uh, pours a bunch of dirt on the bed, buries the rock in it, and then the the rock, which is like a seed, is like growing into this weird, strange plant. Uh, eventually, like at the base of the plant, there's like hair and the kid's like, you know, petting the hair and then a grandma comes out. Mm-hmm. And then the grandma's like you know, giving love and affection to this kid that he's not getting from his parents. Cause the dad's like outright abusive and the mom seems not great. Yeah. Uh, uh, things kind of escalate and, um, you know, the like grandma's taking care of stuff, but then the grandma dies and I don't know the plot gets like, like the images just get like more intense and weird from here. Um, in a way where like I don't fully know how to explain how it ends. Mm-hmm. There's like a there's there's like a part in it where the when the grandma's alive, uh, because he's being protected by the grandma, that's just like erupting like pee, like yellow liquid out of the bed <laughs> and stuff. Like it, there's some strange images going on here. Um, and then you know, uh, there's like going to the grave of the grandma and then meeting the grandma at the end and stuff. Mm-hmm. It kind of gets like weird and evocative in the end. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, obviously there is something in here that I think you, David Lynch is going to explore more in other stuff, which is like, uh, child abuse by uh, like parents and things. Um, uh-huh. in a way where, if you if you look at this movie on uh, Letterbox, I think there are multiple reviews that are like a quote from something of like David Lynch had a normal happy childhood or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like you know, Twin Peaks is going to be like far more intensely about um, right this stuff. But um, anyway, the grandmother and the amputee you can both find on Criterion currently, at least. Um, amputee is much shorter. There's a woman writing a letter who, uh, seems to have both legs amputated. Um, the letter is like talking about relationships that she's having with these other people who you never see. And then like a nurse comes in and is like, takes off the bandage on one of the legs. And then it's like clearly some special effect thing, but it's like putting in like weird liquid and stuff that's then pouring out and making weird looping noises. And that's it. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I feel like A for the grandmother for stairs. Okay. The going up and down the stairs is like a recurring thing. Yeah. There's a, there is a part where uh, he's going up the stairs and it then cuts the animation of like really cartoony murdering of the, the mom and dad of like, oh, just like a boulder falls on the mom and then like, you know, stuff like that, but. Uh, and that happens like kind of on the stairs. So, um, and then the amputee, she's just sitting in a chair the whole time 
F. <laughs> <laughs> I I apologize. I got a little distracted because I remembered. Um, <coughs> I still want to track down. I've got two little. I got a David Lynch update and a like call to action for listeners, as yeah. as they say in the social media biz. Um, call to action first. Um, I am trying still to track down a DVD called David Lynch: The Lime Green Collection. Um, it is on eBay for hundred and eighty dollars. I'm not trying to spend that. I am not trying to ask listeners to spend that. Yeah. Um. But if anybody has like files, I just want Industrial Symphony number one. I just know that David Lynch did like a musical, quote unquote, that had like Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern, and it's in like 1990, and like Michael J. Anderson is playing a character called the Woodsman, and I'm like, we've already seen so many ideas that get like taken up again later i want to yeah. see like the first appearance of the woodsman i want to know what that's about um you know molly and i were having kind of a conversation about uh the woodsman i i have not qu- listened yet to um the last two episodes of totally reprise and so um it sounds like the folks over on reprise have like a different in- different and interesting read on the woodsman that i do and so i would love to have this just knowing about this other context where David Lynch has used that sort of character. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Without going like really into the return stuff, I think you and I both have a sort of similar read of like the return is David Lynch as an old man looking back at his entire career. Yeah. And doing stuff about the career, which obviously like a significant part of that is Twin Peaks. Yes. But that's not all of it. And so that's to, to some degree, that's also what this project is about, is, like, trying to watch as much Lynch stuff as we can so that, like, we can do a reading of the tw- Twin Peaks The Return as not just, like, the next season of Twin Peaks, but as, like, David Lynch trying to say something about his career. Yes, yes. Um, also, um, and I will try to pull up a year that this came out, I picked up this week Room to Dream, which is a biography of David Lynch that came out... Um. Let me see here. It's kind of recent, I think. I want to say like 2019. 2018. Um, so yeah, 2018 biography of Lynch. Um, biography slash memoir. Um, some chapters. So according to Christine McKenna, the his biographer, um, she would write chapters based on like I inter- she would go around interviewing like friends, family members, exes. Um, you know, people who just worked on movies, like she was like going around and doing like the normal work of writing a biography, like doing that research that goes into writing a biography. And, um, then she would send those chapters to, to Lynch and then he would write sort of like memoir chapters, um, based on that. And it's been kind of interesting. I don't think it's very good. I don't think the book is very good. I don't think it's really worth your time, listener. But I'm reading it, and I figured I might as well just, like... I'm reading it because I wanted to know about how De- how Lynch thinks about himself, and it has certainly been insightful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think you and I are two people who are sort of skeptical of like the term Lynchian or, uh, and I think part of the skepticism <clears throat> that I have around that term is that like David Lynch gets sort of like mythologized in culture yeah, in a in a huge way, as like, ooh, he's that weird director. And this is the thing that he has like leaned into. Yeah, like early interviews, he is not like performing the character of David Lynch in the way that. Yes, we so we were watching an a, an interview he did around the release of Eraserhead, and he's just like a normal person. He doesn't yeah. talk like he does now. He's like someone who you believe makes a movie like a racer head. Yeah. Where he's telling like a weird story about a dead cat and stuff. But like, he's also just a, a guy. He's like, he's, uh, he's not putting on an affect in the yeah. way that like he has been for the last 30 plus years, you know? Yeah. That the David Lynch number of the day and David Lynch weather report are like specifically even constructing a weird thing intentionally. Yes. Um, and the, I think Room to Dream, as an official biography and as a memoir, leans into the mythologizing of David Lynch. The his first memoir chapter, the first biography chapter has like information. The first memoir chapter, and this is uh, amped up by me listening to the audiobook, where the biography chapters are read by Christine McKenna, the memoir chapters are read by David Lynch. Um, and I don't think he's reading from the book. I think he's just kind of talking into a microphone and maybe these are stories he tells in, in the book and sort of like retells them in a more like chatty tone in the audiobook. Cause he, he will just be like, yeah. So then my buddy and I, we were like setting off pipe bombs in the pool and you know, so anyway, the, <clears throat> I'm not very. I'm only a couple chapters in, um, and I just thought I would let people know. Here's where here's where the myth of David Lynch begins, and I don't. The myth of David Lynch begins with basically the fifties. Like one of the first sentences of the book is the fifties were the best time to grow up in America, like, and that is like the text of of David Lynch's biography begins with. The 50s were good. And then after that, things got bad, basically. And and the first chapters are like McKenna and Lynch together sort of creating this like Boise, Idaho, where where Lynch spent most of his childhood is just like perfect in a way that is like hard to conceive of. Like even when the kids get in trouble, like I say, there's like a bit where like they're setting off pipe bombs. Even when like one of them sets off pipe bomb, chops his own damn leg leg off. Oh, there was enough sinews and tendons and they sewed it back on. It was fine. You know, like it was fine. There's no consequences to anything. Nothing bad ever happens. And that is like where the myth of, of, of Lynch in his own viewing and in the viewing of his biographer begins you know yeah um and then suddenly he goes to high school it's really <laughs> it's really funny to hear him talk about his experiences of high school because the the biographer is sort of like even keeled and just like 
David Lynch had a lot of struggles going to high school and dropped out at a, or, or, or semi dropped out and starts living his life as a painter and, you know, working and blah, blah, blah. And then you get to, to, to David talking about it. And he's like, I fucking hated that place. I coop. I fucking hated high school. That shit was a waste of my time. <laughs> That's literally what he says. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there is like this sort of like break of like life was perfect. And then like the institution of high school entered into it and life was no longer perfect. You know? Yeah. And it's just it's a very weird book. David Lynch is, um, you know, talking once again about a range touch podcast. Uh, <laughs> if people listen to Just King things and sort of get this image of like of, of Stephen King as this guy who thought that life was perfect and then the Kennedy assassination happens um, and life is no longer perfect. David Lynch is not that far removed from Stephen King. Like, like fundamentally, they believe the same things about what the 50s were and what how the Kennedy assassination changed the American psyche. Like, Lynch tells a lengthy story about, like, his girlfriend at the time, like, didn't leave her room for a whole week. She was so distraught about the Kennedy assassination. And I, I, I believe I believe that story. Like, I, I'm sure that's, you know, true or mostly true or whatever. But, like, people think about, about David Lynch in this, like, highfalutin way, and he's just not that. He is yeah. not that different from Stephen King <laughs> yeah. as a guy. <laughs> um, and there was one last thing I wanted to say. It's also, last little thing, um, very funny to, he is a salesman at some, at some part of him is fundamentally a salesman. The book is dedicated to, um, uh, um, and I cannot, re cannot recall his name, but the book is dedicated to this person who Lynch like learned the practice of transcendental meditation from, um, he, he finishes his memoir chapter about his uh, childhood in Boise, Idaho. And he's like, and I really believe in a practice practice called transcendental meditation. You know, you wake up and you do 20 minutes in the morning and I always do 20 minutes at my lunch break. And you can actually buy this other book I've written about transcendental meditation. Anyway, when I meditate, I often think about my perfect idyllic life in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> he's just shilling his bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm thinking because I'm in the middle of I like I'm not in the middle. I'm towards the end of season two of uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones right now. Uh huh. <clears throat> and there's a lot in there about like um, Loretta Lynn being like a a very unreliable narrator of her own life. You mean Tammy Wynette? Tammy Wynette. Yeah. Yes. Loretta um, Lynn, I'm sure, also an unreliable yes, narrator of her no, own life. Tammy Wynette, an extremely unreliable narrator uh -huh. of her own life. Um. And so there's also a part of me that's like, even is getting in the biographer, just adding a sense of legitimacy, but this man yes. is still performing a character when he is getting a biographer to come in and supplement his memoirs where he talks about his idyllic, beautiful childhood while he makes movies about how images of an idyllic, beautiful town enable abuse. Yeah. And I'm not, none of this is saying that I think like David Lynch was abused, just that I, 
like his work feels at odds with like an an idea that there was ever an idyllic town where nothing bad ever happens. Yeah. Um <laughs> um in a way where yeah. I he may still believe some of this stuff, but also there's a, like the what's interesting about David Lynch is that he's just such a character that I like I never know where to believe anything he says. Yes. And I think that like it is very easy to distrust um a person like Tammy Wynette. Um one, I think culturally it is easy to be like, oh well women be crazy. Yeah. You know? But women also, love to lie and exaggerate. But also like Tammy Wynette is like a noted like alcoholic of many decades. Um and it is very easy to be like, well, you know, she was she was on some shit, you know easy to not trust her biography more than just an alcoholic at points yes yes um um and i think people are much more willing to like buy the shit that david is trying to sell about himself and it's very funny to like read through the biography and just be like i don't believe any of this crap (laughs) and i 100 i don't know this i do not know this but from talking about from hearing christina christine mckenna talk about her own method for writing the biography i would not be shocked if she is like either buying or involved in uh lynch's like uh transcendental meditation side gig like yeah she seem she seems to ascribe to and i'm not trying to knock meditation or transcendental meditation as a practice i am trying to knock the way that David Lynch talks about those things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I would not be surprised if she were involved in that business somehow, you yeah. know? <laughs> um, but anyway, you want to talk about Dune? Yeah. How long do you think we're going to have to go about Dune? That little freaked fold space. Yeah. I'm asking cause I have to pee. Uh, go pee. I don't think we're going to go long, but you might as well just go pee. Yeah, I'll go pee. Sometimes if it's going to be real short, having to pee will, like, push us through faster. Yeah. I thought about vamping, but I just nothing came, nothing sprung to my mind. <clears throat> if I had thought about it, I would have just talked about the biography there. Oh, I I got the password, uh, my mother in law's password for 
uh, Paramount Plus, so I might Sick. just start watching Deep Space Nine. On. Fuck yes. So, us watching Deep Space Nine might become a subcurrent of this podcast. <laughs> also, so you got these two things. Uh, you got the book, and you're looking for that like collection, or at least uh-huh. that one uh, play. I do- Most of the other stuff in that DVD, it seems like, has been distributed and other stuff, but for yeah. some reason, this industry... I can't imagine why no one wants to watch this one random musical that David Lynch did in 1990 <laughs> that has not shown up in anything else, seemingly. Yeah. Except a laser disc from 1991. If anybody has that laser disc, let me know. Um, and a way to like digitize it or something. Yeah. Or a laser disc player to send it. I would love a fucking laser disc player. Yeah. Please don't spend $180 on a DVD for the podcast. But if you have a laser disc of this one Ren David Lynch thing and a laser disc player that you are willing to never get back, let me know. I'll send you an address. We'll figure this yeah. out. <laughs> also, if you have a Betamax player, <laughs> let me know. Um. But anyway, I. So not wanting to, uh, you know, sometimes for like stairwells, obviously there's lots of streaming services we'll watch there. Sometimes we'll completely legally rent it. Yeah. Uh, in a format where it sits on my hard drive for a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, those rental services. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I didn't want to have to do that with all Twin Peaks. It turns out that I think actually the... The original series, at least, is on Paramount+. Plus. Oh, good. I noticed that it was on there. But before I got my mother-in-law's password to Paramount+, Plus, um, before my mother-in-law gifted us a subscription to Paramount+, Plus, <laughs> we're definitely not sharing an account. Uh, this is all parody. <laughs> this is our, all RP. I, I just bought the Blu-rays for... Uh, Twin Peaks, it's like a collection that's the original series and the return mm. um, because I didn't want to have to deal with having all those files set on my laptop. Um, and then I also got DVDs. I forget if I said this on the podcast, but I also got DVDs for On the Air and The Hotel Room, the the two failed TV mm. shows that Lynch had after. Yeah. So like... I we are trying to like do as much other stuff as we can. Like we have the main lineup of like here's all the movies he directed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Here's all Twin Peaks. Um as like main episodes of the podcast. But we're going to be doing other shit in here. Yeah, I'm Room to Dream was the was the book that it was easiest while I was walking to work to be like that might be interesting to talk about on the show. But there were, like... I literally, like, bought that while I was walking to work. There were other books on um, Libro that were, like... Huh, I'll have to, like, come back and look at that. Maybe that'll be interesting. But it was, like, books that other people had written about Lynch. I'm not super interested in, like... You know... I'm not super interested in, like, popular press books about david lynch maybe other people's biographies but i don't really want to read other people other people's criticisms of david lynch films criticism as like a practice not as a like oh we're wagging our fingers yeah (laughs) um because i don't care but maybe if i like maybe if there was something more like academic 
that might be interesting. I just am not really interested in like popular press readings of, of David Lynch films. I sort of know what, you know, yeah. most people think of David Lynch movies. Um, I haven't really done it yet because like Eraserhead and the Elephant Man are so plain to me about what they are. Mm-hmm. And Dune is just a fun 80s sci-fi movie. Yeah. But like, I think once we get to um, Blue Velvet, I'm probably going to have somewhat of a return of I went on Google Scholar and here's some articles I pulled just to yeah. to try and get a sense of like how do people write about some of this stuff. But, yeah. But I feel like a lot of people who are like writing academically about Lynch aren't doing it about the Elephant Man. Yeah. <clears throat> but maybe I'll check those out just in case. Just yeah. to see if there's anything fun. Um, anyway, do we want to get to Dune? Yeah, so that little freak fold space. Yeah. I love that big little freak. Yeah. One of my favorite, I know we, I talked about this on a previous episode where I just watched it because Emily loves Dune. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were watching a bunch of Dune stuff, but, um, one of my favorite moments in this, like early on in this movie is, uh, like a bunch of men just in like weird fetish leather armor, uh, trounce into this like giant palace, rolling like a, a train car sized so tank good. of like it's weird so gas good. water or something. It's so uh, good. Pull back all of the like coverings on it, and out of the like weird murky depths within, this giant like fishworm, fishworm alien thing comes with a vagina out mouth with a vagina mouth that the- looks like the, the, uh, unborn, but like crawling around demon child that, uh, Casca <laughs> yeah. has in berserk. Yes. Uh, but huge. And it comes out and says a bunch of wild stuff and they have to like, there's like a translator on it and the people who are with it have these like weird yeah. translators and it's like, we want you to, I want you to kill Paul Atreides. <laughs> You didn't see me. I wasn't here. I didn't say that to you. And then they have to roll it out. It's just so funny. Leave the gas and the oil and walk away. And I promise you save. Oh, shit. Wrong movie. (laughs) Um, It's just so funny to me. Like the amount of like 80s spectacle. We've got this Uh giant like kind of animatronic or like puppet thing that we're going to have. Uh, we got like all these guys rolling it out and then it just to be like, you didn't see me. I wasn't here. (laughs) It's so funny to me. Should we summarize Dune? It's, it's Dune. No, Uh, uh, no, I, I, I've made an executive decision. We're not summarizing Dune. Yeah. It, I, I will not summarize the film Dune. What I will tell you, if you are not familiar, is the the, the Nazi people. Uh, one of their children uh, ends up being the chosen one of a uh, oppressed people and leads them to freedom. Yes, that is the plot of Dune. Yep, <laughs> that's my one sentence summary of Dune. <laughs> uh, the film Dune. I have no idea what the book Dune is about. <laughs> I've seen enough adaptations of the first book, Dune, that most of that's there. Okay. So, the the film Dune comes about because Dino De Laurentiis is a, like, producer of films in the 70s and 80s. He is an Italian dude who comes to the U.S. and sort of has this idea in his head that he's going to create his own film industry, um, uh... And 
um, like separate from the Hollywood system. And so like, yeah. he has his whole, his own whole setup where like he, he has these people he employs that like build sets that, that do thing that do this, that, and the other. And he has this idea that he's going to compete with Hollywood by getting like famous directors and famous bands to come like make these very spectacular movies on the cheap um, and just try to hit on some of that like Star Wars money or some of that Friday the 13th money or whatever. This is one of those movies that's trying to hit on that Star Wars money. Comes out in 1984. David Lynch agrees to... (coughs) Also, separate to this, for over a decade, various people have been trying to adapt the science fiction novel Dune. Um, You can go watch the film Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune, um, if you want to learn more about that. Um, I will caution you that there is more than one rapist in that movie that is sort of just uncritically there and a talking head in that documentary. I don't necessarily recommend it, but if you want to know about that history, that is the document about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't seen that movie. Don't find that history all that interesting but i'm told it's a good movie whatever who cares people have been trying to adapt dune forever it's never gotten off the ground dino de laurentis somehow lands the rights to dune and um david lynch has now directed two movies elephant man was sort of a surprise hit um got some academy award nominations got a little buzz um, but David Lynch hasn't been quite able to parlay that into like it's four years between Elephant Man and and Dune yeah. hasn't quite been able to like break through again like yeah. that. And, and Eraser had his like a cult classic at this point. Yes, and so Lynch, I, I have gotten the impression, and I'm I'll be interested to hear what he says about it when I hear it in the biography. But I've gotten the impression over the years that Lynch didn't really want to do Dune. But Lynch did want to do Blue Velvet at this point. Blue Velvet is already a thing that, like, exists in his mind, and he wants to make it happen. And Dino De Laurentiis says, listen, I will make Blue Velvet happen if you make Dune happen. And so they, like, make this devil's bargain, and they make Dune, and it's a flop. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is an infamous flop. (laughs) But I don't really know why it's a flop because this movie's great. I know why it's a flop. I know why it's a flop because it's stupid. It's it's stupid and it it is like Star Wars in that you go to some different weird locations uh-huh. and you get people just saying nonsense words at you. Yes, and especially in the this has not become true of Star Wars, but in the first Star Wars, most of those nonsense words exist purely to just evoke something in your mind, and that's it. Yeah. The Clone Lucas didn't know what the Clone Wars were. He's just, he needed, like, a war that happened in the past. He came up with the Clone Wars. That's an interesting yeah. little phrase. There you go. The You just get Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. What does that mean? At this point, we think it's going to be a man in a furry coat. <laughs> <laughs> how wrong we were yeah but we shot stuff with a man in a furry coat you ever you ever watch like the new versions of 
A where, new hope. Yeah, where <laughs> Han Solo, like, they, like... They they clip him out and move him up. Yeah, it's <laughs> so <great>. funny. <laughs> it's great because now he has a tail, and they didn't plan for that. So you gotta have him step on the tail, and then you have him. <laughs> Jabba the Hutt reacts because he got his tail stepped on. It's so funny. Anyway, I love movies. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a and it's this is a thing where like the books are gonna have more information about this. But the movie is not concerned with like really teaching you most of these, these vocab words. And in a way where you watch the, uh, Dennis Villanueva, like, however you say his name. I think it's Denis Villeneuve, but you and I, you and I, for some reason, keep pronouncing it more and more Spanish every time yeah. we say it. So we're, at some, some point, point we're like, yeah. Villa. <laughs> Villa Nuevo. <laughs> anyway. Um, you watch his, and there's like a an intentional attempt to like cut down on some of the vocab words that don't matter. Uh-huh. Where I don't even think they call the Gamjabar the Gamjabar. And I'm like, people know what the fucking Gamjabar Jabar is. Yes. Like, you can say Gamjabar. You're fine. People know what that is. But this movie is just going to be like, yeah, we're just going to say all the fucking words. Yeah. They, no one says the Orange Catholic Bible, but like, they say every other stupid word. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> what is <laughs> What do you call the shadow the shadow of your second mouse moon? We call it Muad'Dib. <laughs> then you will call me Muad'Dib. No, then you will call me Paul Muad'Dib. <laughs> <laughs> Big Ed voice, Paul Muad'Dib. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's talk about why this movie's great. But so the reason why it flops is because uh, Star Wars, you watch even now and you're like, one, the effects are pretty good. Yeah. Even now. Yeah. Um, Turns out George Lucas knew how to do really good effects. Yeah. Uh, Turns out that miniatures, miniatures in this still rule to see. Uh Uh-huh. They are not Star Wars miniature work. No, they are not of the same level of quality. The other thing is that Star Wars as it is constructed is not based on anything other than George Lucas doing scripts. Yeah. He is, he is intentionally constructing a movie. He is intentionally constructing a movie that is going to be a fun action movie Mm -hmm. where you're going to have fun action movie scenes. And he is also someone who understands movies and understands that if I'm doing this, like science fiction action thing, what I need to do is I need to operate in the realm of just like fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it is good and evil. Mm-hmm. It is like wizards essentially. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff gets simplified down because it is a movie and you want to quickly convey, even as you were saying all mm-hmm. of these nonsense words, you want to quickly convey and like let people latch on to like a, a, a very concrete and easy to understand version of the world because ultimately this is to entertain people the novel dune however is like notoriously complex in both it's like sci-fi like constructions and also it's like politics and frank herbert is unfortunately a co-writer yes. on this movie so he is making sure all that shit gets in here hell or high water <laughs> and so when this movie is operating in a sort of mode that you might Compared to like fairy tale, 
We will call him Paul Muad'Dib. <laughs> he he is operating in a very like specific religious mode. Yeah, and that religious mode is is also what makes like the Silmarillion a hard read for people. Yeah, because the Silmarillion is also operating less in the space of like legend and fairy tale mm-hmm. that like the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is. It is operating more directly into this like religion mode, where some of those texts. <laughs> are like bizarre and, and difficult to deal with and also have this certain tone to it yeah. of like, like the way of like Muad'Dib is a thing that's supposed to carry so much more weight mm-hmm. than like the Jedi or what, like no, it's about like well, he was your, Anakin was your father. That's what matters. Well, and like movies generally as an art form, like come up after like Freud, you know, or, or concurrent with Freud. And so movie going audiences for about as long as movies have been around, have had this idea of like the interior life and, and like star Wars is a movie that gives you that star Wars will give you like Luke on Dagobah, like going into the cave and seeing his father. And it's not, like, deep. I'm not saying that, like, oh, such, like, psychoanalytic complexity from, um, like, from Star Wars. But it, it has an awareness of those things. And sort of, like, we have created this hero character, um, this sort of mythic hero character of Luke Skywalker. <coughs> but we're going to give him that sort of, like, modern-day, like, interiority that is not always there when you go and read like the Silmarillion or Lord of the Rings, you know, um, it, Frank Herbert and then consequently the movie don't give you like Paul's interiority in this way. Paul is like this, but you do get weird voiceover of it sometimes you do in a, in a very different way. The, the, the voiceover you get from Paul is like, Oh, it's a hunter seeker. It detects motion. You know, he's telling you about the sci-fi yes. constructs and not about like, you know. Yeah, the voiceover is is extremely in the the way that you would write this in a book is that you would have the interiority like books naturally tend towards interiority. Yes, but that you would have that interiority where in the scene where obviously you wouldn't want to be talking because it's a hunter seeker, you have the like internal thoughts explain some of what's happening. And, you know, Noon, the the mm-hmm. new Dune, yeah. uh, doesn't have a bunch of stuff that is explaining that, but is trying to, like, through extended cinema, convey what's going on here, what, like, how is he hiding, things like that. Whereas this is just, we have to cover all of the Book of Dune mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah. So we're just going to have him do the thing that he does in the book and just think... Yeah. It's a hunter-seeker. It hunts right. by movement or whatever. Right. Yeah. So anyway, all of this sounds like critical of Dune. This is the best movie we've watched. This is the best movie David Lynch has made so far. Yeah. Hands uh, down. <laughs> this movie rocks. Films are images and sequence one after another, sometimes accompanied by sound. And sometimes those images are the movie starts with the expanse <laughs> of space and then a woman's face fades in and tells you about like the the thousands of years of history and the year is 1091 yeah. no 10191 or yeah, whatever 10191 yeah um and then uh start like fades out and then fades back in and goes <laughs> oh, oh i forgot shit. to 
you. There was a guy Sorry. named Paul. There's this guy named Paul, and they're trying to go to the... Uh, I needed to set up the actual movie. I just told you the background. So. <laughs> this is, there's this boy named named Paul Atreides is going to be really important. And they need this spice to the like, full time, and it's on this planet. It's important, because we're going to spend a lot of time on the planet. It's called Arrakis. It's a desert world. Dune. Dune. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, it slipped my mind. I got really focused on like the the lengthy history of Empire for a second. <laughs> it's so funny how they fade her out and then back in when she says, so "I forgot." To- <laughs> it's so fucking good. <laughs> this movie is so much funnier than I think people realize. I <laughs> like intention. I think it is supposed to be a funny moment. Yes. To have her fade back in and be like, I forgot. But I I don't know how many people watch it and think it's hilarious that she does that. Because <laughs> everything everything is presented with that weight of, like, religiosity and of history uh-huh. and of, uh-huh. like, the centuries of empire and everything. But there's so many jokes within that, but it yes. just maintains that tone in a way where I don't think people always, like... I've talked to people who've watched this movie and I don't think realize that like there's a lot of intentional comedy in it. Well, and it's like, so our, our, our introduction to Paul played by Kyle McLaughlin with the most luscious hair. Sorry, Kale McLaughlin. Kale. <laughs> um, Paul with the lo- most luscious hair that Kale is ever going to have. Yeah. Um, he's like reading something and he does a little exposition and then, like, three of his advisors, like, one who's training him in combat, one who's, like, a mentat, which is, like, a science fiction thing that is explained in the film that I didn't really, really ever pick up on in the two times I've watched it. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another guy who's the doctor. They all walk in, and, and, and they're like, how dare you? Like, you're supposed to always be ready for an assassin. You were sitting with your back to the door, and Kale was like... Oh, well, I, you know, I, I sensed you, I heard your footsteps down the hall and I knew it was the three of you and you couldn't have faked it. I would have known. And it's silly. It's fucking yeah. silly as shit. They know. Um, and these are all like, if Dale Cooper says, I heard you walking down the hall, I knew it was you, Truman. That would be a very foamy, funny moment in Twin Peaks. People would understand in Twin Peaks that that's a joke. Yeah. But there's, like, some sort of, like, disconnect in the sort of popular understanding of Dune where people don't realize how funny it is. People don't realize how funny it is when that weird little freak and his, like, 20 attendants (laughs) are rolled in and then he has to say, I wasn't here. You didn't see me. This conversation (laughs) didn't happen. All right, 20 attendants. Chop, chop. (laughs) Roll me back out to our giant spaceship that we flew in here. (laughs) People don't realize how funny it is when the big worm guy says, I just folded from Ix. <laughs> they, don't, they don't realize that a thing that's like not really commented on, but is that the palace that you saw at the beginning, they fly the entire palace in yes. to Dune. <laughs> that in and of itself is funny. That he flew his fucking palace here. <laughs> At the very beginning of the movie, that one lady who fades out and fades back in is like, 
the Fremen have this prophecy about the Kwisatz Haderach, who's going to save them or whatever. Yeah. And then the Kwisatz Haderach, people mention the prophecy multiple times. No one says the words Kwisatz Haderach for like two plus hours. So then the final line of the film is a is a four-year-old with glowy blue eyes and magic powers saying, he is the Kwisatz Haderach. As it Cut rains. to credits. <laughs> yeah. That's funny as shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking funny. Because this movie's not good because of the action. No. There's no... I was telling you because you haven't seen Noon. There's the part where they like land. Uh, so they're flying. They see like the spice miners and then they, there's a worm sign. Worm sign. Worm sign. We have worm sign the likes of which <laughs> God has never, never seen. <laughs> Thanks, Big Ed. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is not when they have worm sign the likes of which God has never seen. This is, this is the, the worm sign that Paul Atreides calls. Um, Kale McLaughlin and you know perfectly nails exactly how many minutes away because he's the quiz at Chatteratch. Uh <laughs> should we explain the Kale thing? I was I was fine leaving it uncommented on, but now we should. Now that you said should we explain the Kale thing? So so if you're curious, go this ties into David Lynch mythologizing himself and other people mythologizing David Lynch. Go on YouTube and type in, like, eight minutes of David Lynch being weird. You'll find the video I'm talking about. It's this, like, very sweet montage video. It's got clips from David Lynch interviews, David Lynch behind the scenes, um, you know, Laura Dern interviews, Kyle MacLachlan interviews, Naomi Watts interviews, people talking about Lynch and him just being kind of a kooky guy. You get clips of him on the lawn with the cow telling people to vote for Laura Dern. Um, one of the things that happens in this is like Kyle MacLachlan saying that Dino De Laurentiis had such a thick Italian accent, he couldn't say Kyle. And so he would say Gail. (laughs) And so ever since, like since the eighties, David Lynch has only ever called him Kale on set, basically. (laughs) And so you get this interview of, of, of Kyle MacLachlan explaining this and then it cuts to like a bunch of footage behind the scenes of the return and it's just like Kale come over here hey Kale can we get another take on that Kale (laughs) (laughs) it's really fucking funny yeah anyway it's the one where uh, Kale does the worm sign yeah they then land they get the miners off they leave and then the the worm comes and eats the whole Uh uh, mining thing yeah um in noon, it's an extended action scene. Paul Atreides has to run out there to like save someone, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no like, oh no, are they gonna be able to? There's no consideration of that style of filmmaking here. No, they just save him. Yeah, it's just like let's land so we can put them on board. There's no like extended conversation between Paul Atreides and his father about like. Will we have the space for the men? Like, can we do this? We'd be risking our mission or like what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. No, it's just we're going to save them. They go down and save them. Well, and it's or like, I forget if it's his dad or someone else, but it's his dad. Yeah. Um, who doesn't want to? Who doesn't want to? Yeah. Down. But yeah. And it's like <clears> so much just, in noon is about like how much Paul Atreides looks up to his dad as like a wonderful man and father and stuff. 
Well, what what this movie understands, like, emotionally about what Dune is about, um, is, like, Paul loves and respects his father, wants to get revenge. There's a bunch of, like, politicking happening. Paul sort of escapes that by going to the Fremen. Like, that's all that you really need. Those are, like, the basics of Dune. And so the thing that makes that scene function is not a lengthy action sequence because none of the things I just said in that in that last statement were about action. They were about character relationships. Yeah. And like this movie just sort of understands that. Like this movie is like weird and bad and doesn't always work. But like also Paul hangs out with Patrick Stewart at the start and then Patrick Stewart isn't on screen for like 45 plus minutes and then he bumps into Patrick Stewart on the battlefield. Yeah. And it's not like... They montage past Paul Atreides falling in love with a woman, but they do need to actually show you the scene of <laughs> Patrick Stewart and Kyle McLaughlin getting back together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, <coughs> the, the falling in love with the woman is not important to this story. What's important yeah. to this story is the getting revenge for the father, and so part of that has to be reuniting with like his dad's forces and like oh this guy is still loyal to house atreides you know um and you don't need an action sequence for that it's like one minute of the movie of just hey i'm still alive well i'm loyal to you all right let's go do the last and then the end of the movie is a big action sequence because this is competing with star wars you have to have a big action sequence at the end but like you know you don't need to do one every five minutes yeah. You need to do one every, like, 45 minutes. And most of the action scene at the end is just like, isn't it cool how he's riding a worm? It is cool when they're, he rides a worm. They're all riding a worm. Uh, and then we get the, the like, main villain throughout this getting sucked out the blast in the, mm-hmm. the wall of the, while the girl's like, ah! <laughs> the little four-year-old. <laughs> One of the things about this movie that was such a delight on revisiting it was that I somehow forgot that the Baron floats around this entire movie. <laughs> and so he's the first scene that the Baron's in, he's like sitting in his chair, being a like kind of fat phobic caricature person. Mm-hmm. It's not great. <clears throat> um, That's also just this character, though. Like... Yeah. That's like as Frank Herbert wrote him, you yeah. know. Um, so he is in every single adaptation. And so like, it's, it was as delightful this time as it was last time when he's like going through that whole scene, sitting and being evil. And then he just starts floating. (laughs) (laughs) And I just had forgotten that he floats. Yeah. (laughs) And it's funny. It's good. (laughs) And he floats up and like. It's just a set. Yeah. It's so incredible how he floats up and it's just like that was just the the like a uh, ceilingless room on a set and now he's just floating up into like the warehouse that they've built this. Yes. <laughs> In a way that can feel kind of still vaguely believably sci-fi. Uh-huh. That but they also just have this weird space like that doesn't have ceilings. <laughs> but also it is just like a weird reveal that this has been a set the whole time. It's so funny. Also, in this scene... I love this movie. One of the unsung heroes of this movie 
is Jack Nance in this scene just like banging a gong, you know? And, and, then, and like, being like, we kept joking throughout it because Jack Nance just keeps having this expression on his face as if David Lynch is like, all right, now go. And Jack Nance is like, I I know that they're kind of like Nazi coded, but I, I still think I would just prefer to be one of the guys over there because what's happening here is weird. <laughs> I do not like hanging out with the Harkonnens. Can I leave now? I don't... I'm not that big in being in the room when he, like, takes the heart plug out of the the David Bowie-ass lesbian woman and has her bleed out on him. Jack Nance is in, like, three or four scenes and just looks mildly uncomfortable in all of them <laughs> yeah. and doesn't get any lines, and he's perfect. Yes. I love him. <laughs> I would kill and die for him. It's very funny that the end credits tell you his name. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. Also, I love the end credits where it's just like, here's all the main actors, and it's just like a photo of them Uh with the name and what role they play in alphabetical order. It's so good. It's also good because like, there's a character who is referred to several times as Duncan, and I knew through cultural osmosis that he's his name is Duncan Idaho. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of forgot that until the credits. Or like in the in the film, like, she is just a Bene Gesserit or the Reverend Mother or whatever. But like in the credits, it's like Bene Gesserit, Reverend Mother something something the third, you know? And yeah. she's got like four names the third. <laughs> It's just like, oh, right. You just put in, like, the name from the book. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like in terms of, like, actual style, the the most David Lynch... One is that there are just some awkward guys talking to each other in this. That we've hit on some yes. moments that feel Lynch uh, in that way, like, something that he would direct. There's, like, a just a part where, like, a, a weird guy just shows up and is talking, and it's just the most, like, Lynch character has just walked into this movie I with can- the Harkonnens. The, the, the first time I saw this movie, I thought Sting was like a bad actor. And then I realized watching it this time, I'm like, no, he's just under, he is, he is in tune with like what David Lynch wants out of an actor. Because yeah. like the weird, the first time you like watch Twin Peaks and you're like, why do they all talk like this? And then you just get like acclimatized to it. Sting also talks like that in this movie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um yeah, and then, but the other thing is, there's like multiple dream sequences, including like fever dreams and the waking dream that Paul has and stuff. Yeah. And those are the ones that are just like the most intensely Lynch is happening. Yeah. Where there's just like shit happening in space and then just like a hand fades in and you're like, okay, Lynch. He. He has a waking dream where he realizes his mom is pregnant. And to symbolize this, you just get like a weird gory shot of a fetus and just like blood everywhere. And it's like, ah, David, hi, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Or like, or like he has his waking dream and it's very abstract. And then you get like, he realized you need to be a little more, you need to be a little less abstract when you're, when you're saying to the audience at this moment, Paul realizes that the emperor is plotting to kill him. He has a vision of the emperor plotting to kill him. And so the screen like tears as if the image had been a piece of paper that gets like crumpled up from the inside outward. And then you see that weird little freak from earlier saying, 
you must kill Paul Atreides. I was not here. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, only, only, only Lynch would think of like the weird, like paper crumbling effect of like getting the, the film torn away. Yeah. You know, the veil from Paul's eyes is torn away. And to to express that, we have cinema itself dissolving. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, it's a fucking we, great movie. We didn't do emails last time, so we have a lot of emails, and we're two hours and eleven minutes in, twelve minutes in. I'm not that like I'm good energy wise. We'll do Me these. Too. It's yeah. just getting long. Um, y'all y'all love when I'm just shouting about uh some movie franchise and then we just talk about how funny and sick it is when an images happen in the main movie we watched. It's so cool. That's what you all come space. here for. It's so cool when he folds space, all the dumb effects that are happening. Yeah. I definitely like, I just imagine, um, David Lynch talking to Dino De Laurentiis being like, how many dream sequences do I get? I need to know how many dream sequences do I get? Can can I make folding space a dream sequence? All right, cool. Yeah. And then, like, they finally agreed on the number, and then he's like, I'm going to have the vastness of space, and I'm going to have a lady, like, fade in. I'm going to have the close-up image of a beautiful woman fade in. You can't stop me, Dino. (laughs) That's the other great thing about David Lynch's biography, is how much all of the myriad ways that David Lynch comes up to say she had big tits. <laughs> <laughs> like there's an inter like Christine McKenna is like relating an interview with like one of his high school friends who's like he would he, he had like this one main girlfriend and then he would like go see these other girls that he would call wow women. <laughs> <laughs> or or like then David Lynch in the memoir moment, like describing this like high school girlfriend that he was really committed to. And he was like, she was a really, you know, a, a beautiful lady, a, a beautiful person. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so our first email. This is technically for our um, uh, uh, <clears throat> Elephant Man episode. Elephant Man episode. But equally applicable to this episode, to be honest. From Ina. If young Jackie Chan and young Paul Walker did a buddy movie, what kind of scheme would they get up to and or thwart? Which celebrity would be their villain? And which young celebrity would be their third friend in the sequel? (laughs) Oh my god. Um, Ina, this is such an elaborate question. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. So, Jackie Chan, Paul Walker, they're both young. Yes. Uh, We're getting a buddy movie. Mm Mm-hmm. We have warped space-time so that the two of them are young men at the same time. <laughs> yes. Um, I think it is a buddy cop movie. Yeah, I think they're just two police officers. Yeah. Um, what kind of scheme would they get up to and or thwart? Um, I mean, this is sort of rush hour, but it'd be nice to have a, a rush hour that's, like, less... Like, has just less weird baggage all over it. Yeah. But... I, I think the like main premise would be, especially since it's young Jackie Chan. Um, oh, you, you've got to have like a, a international terrorist where they're they're coming together from yeah. like the U.S. and China. That's what I was gonna say. Is that like Jackie 
is a Hong Kong cop who has been like tracking these people and like, you know, comes over to the US and Paul Walker is his like American like buddy cop. And the, there's like, there's a way to do a like, ah, we come from two different cultures that isn't racist. Like the Rush Hour movies are racist. Yeah. <laughs> but it's absolutely that they're doing like a drug bust or an international terrorist or something. And that yeah. Jackie is a Hong Kong cop and uh, Paul Walker is an L.A. cop. And they, you yeah. know, come to understand each other over the course of the film. Um, Which celebrity Can would I, be their Because I think L.A. cop is also what it is with Rush Hour. I want to just with Paul Walker's image. Can we change it to a Chicago cop? Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Mostly because I just want action scenes in my city for this movie that we're coming up with. Yeah, sure. So, well, this guy, the, this villain who's dealing drugs on the streets of Chicago or something. Who's who's playing him? Um. Hmm. We can't. We can get anybody, right? We can get. We're already folding. We're already the, the weird little guy folding space and time <laughs> to put these these men together into this yeah. movie when they were young. So, uh, what if we get Bruce Lee? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I could. If if Bruce Lee had lived longer, I would have loved to have seen him. And I don't know because he, Bruce Lee, much like David Lynch. Um, as much as like a movie maker is also a guy who is like selling his weird philosophy. Yeah. Bruce, Lee, Bruce Lee's philosophy, much less weird than David Lynch's is, <laughs> but he's very committed to his philosophy. So I don't know that he ever would show up in a movie as a villain, but if he could find it within himself, he would be a really good villain in a Jackie Chan movie. Um, I just, you would have to find, you couldn't, you couldn't get Bruce Lee to be selling drugs but you could find like bruce lee is like you could maybe pitch bruce lee on like uh, oh you're like a student who is like you know like of this martial arts school who is like gone astray i think you could get him to do that you know yeah. i don't know it would be hard to convince him but you could do it um and which young celebrity would be there third friend in the sequel uh i really i really want ludicrous to be their third friend yeah <laughs> luda <laughs> i want the i want the part where they they get in ludicrous uh-huh to be their third friend and then there's obviously a high-speed car chase in the in the uh sequel here uh, where Paul Walker's driving in the car. Mm -hmm. uh, Jackie Chan is doing wild stunts that are actual real stunts, and you cannot believe that this man did not die doing this movie. Uh -huh. Like, jumping between cars and doing all sorts of wild... He does a repeat of the, like, fucking running behind, holding mm -hmm. onto a vehicle, and you're like... I, I've seen this man do this stunt before, and it's still fucking insane. I can't believe he did it again. Um, and then... Ludacris comes up with his his car, which is obviously a, a big giant car, as it often is in Fast and the Furious, and move bitch to get out the way starts playing. <laughs> God, if not only Luda was their friend, but like <clears throat> you would get like Can yeah. we Can we in the plot of the this movie that we're making, Ludacris is not playing 
a character, a character, they become friends with Ludacris. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the rapper. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Nora. But also, he still does have the hacker abilities that he has in Gamer the Movie. <laughs> Nora asks, "What archetypically scary thing, clowns, spiders, etc., are you least afraid of?" I'm not bothered by clowns. I, d- yeah. I just don't think clowns are scary. Yeah. I get it. Like, people who... I have seen clowns and been like, ah, oh, I get why people are scared of clowns. It's not not a thing for me. Yeah. Um, Like, spiders and uh, house centipedes kind of freak me out. Uh-huh. Um, in terms of, like, things in a movie that are going to scare me the most, it's aliens and home invasions. Mm-hmm. But clowns? Clowns are fine. What's your favorite Russell Dolls Crow? also, like, creepy dolls don't scare me. What's your favorite Russell Crowe movie? Noah. Easy. Easy one to fill out. I need to, like, Google Russell Crowe movies just to get yeah. a list here. While um, you're Googling, can I share with you one of my favorite Onion headlines? Okay. Um, it was, like, Russell Crowe... Russell Crowe praised for his performance as detective who cannot sing in Les Miserables. <laughs> I just think that's really funny. Um, I'm looking at this being like, I know I've seen some of these movies. I just don't think about Russell Crowe that much. This is a... I mean, some of this is like, you get to this point and I'm like, not watching movies much anymore. For a while. You seen I Noah? Mean, Noah's, no. a, Noah's a good, stupid movie. No, I haven't seen Noah. Um... Not a great stupid movie, but a good one. Is this isn't the main Master and Commander? No, is it? this is not the real okay. Master and Commander that you want. Um. Yeah, it might be L.A. Con- uh, Confidential. That might be it for me. I don't know. Um, Nora Russell also- Crowe is just not a man I think about very often. Nora asks a much better question next. Sorry, sorry, wife. Wait, you're- Gladiator. Yeah. Yeah, Gladiator. Nora's next question is much funnier. If you could add Grogu to any movie covered on this podcast, what would you pick? Um, let me. So I have I have an answer in my head, but I want to look. <laughs> what if we just replaced the Eraserhead baby with Grogu? <laughs> oh my god! What if we replaced the Eraserhead baby with Grogu? <laughs> what if you swapped them? What if, what if the man, what if Mando is going around with the Eraserhead baby? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so Jack and Ants is having to deal with this this weird gremlin child who's like eating like hundreds of eggs, <laughs> and then the Mando just has this strange wrapped up baby that's just like. <laughs> 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 oh, that's pretty good. Um. What? Okay. <clears throat> this isn't necessarily a swap, right? Yeah. So Sonatine is a movie where um, Kitano is depressed and has a girlfriend. Hanabi is a movie where Kitano is depressed and has a wife. What if the third film in this trilogy is Kitano is depressed and has a baby? What if that baby was Grogu. Yeah. We've never officially done uh, Robbie Hood 
uh-huh. on this podcast, which is kind of weird. I like we've it's talked about it so much that I think it counts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Jackie Chan's just taking care of Grogu now. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be great too. What if um what if Grogu was just one of the schizophrenics in uh, Angels in the Universe? Uh, <laughs> what if, you know in Akira where there's the, the weird kids in the chairs? One of them's just Grogu now. <laughs> what if, what if the shitty waiter in Angels of the Universe was Grogu? <laughs> That'd be good. <laughs> what if, what if the vampire Nadja is Grogu? <laughs> Uh. Priscilla sends a long email that I will skim now. Um, blah blah blah. Sorry, Pris, you're not saying blah blah blah. Uh, Pris has just recently started listening to the show and has been on her locked account, just like tweeting every day about the show. Um, and it has like filled me with so much joy and life. Thank you, Pris. Um, yeah. But I'm not reading this like eight paragraph email you sent that I don't have. You said I don't have to read all of. At least not on the air. Oh, here's a question. Episode 22. Goodbye, Dragon Inn. Y'all talk about how cruising in this... Y'all talk about cruising in this episode, and I'm curious how literal you are. Is there literal, actual homosexual cruising happening at this theater? Yes. Yes, Uh, there is. Uh, Distinctly different than a lot of the other ones where we read homosexuality into what's happening. It It is, like, canonically... Cruising is happening at this theater, and, and that is what's being lost. Pr- Priscilla goes on to elaborate that, like, you two talk about people being gay so much that, like, aren't actually gay that I couldn't tell if real cruising was happening in this movie. But yes, real cruising is happening in the film Goodbye Dragon Inn. Yeah. Um, it is explicitly about that. In a way where uh, when we are talking about gay stuff is happening in Rebels of the Neon God... Yeah. I actually feel pretty confident that that is what is supposed to be happening, even though it is more subtextual there. Yes. It is more subtextual there, but like existing in conversation with Simon Long's other work, which touches on queerness in more direct ways, I feel pretty confident yes. saying that there is queerness happening in Rebels in the Neon God. And I felt that way even before I saw. Um, yes. <clears throat> uh, anyway. Um. Th- anyway, thank you, Pris, for enjoying the podcast so much. Pris sends a second email. Oh, another question I just remembered. Autumn, did you ever manage to develop a definite opinion on the 99-minute cut of Enter the Dragon versus the 103-minute cut of Enter the Dragon? If so, please feel free to use this opportunity to be a huge snob about it. No one can stop you. This is your show. I have not... You know what's funny is I have seen the film Enter the Dragon like two or three times since I mentioned that I wanted to like watch the two comp- cuts and compare them. Um, I just watched Into the Dragon a lot. It's one of my favorite movies. I, I, don't rec- I don't think I actually went through and was like, I got to make sure that I watch the two different cuts and take notes about what the differences are. I don't think I did that. <laughs> uh, I do want to call out a special appreciation uh, that Pris said, best regards, Toons is the driving cat, which... I don't think it's ever actually come up on this podcast. I just talk about Toonces probably more often than like most people do on my locked Twitter. <laughs> because I just think that Toonces, if you don't know what Toonces the Driving Cat is. I'm not sure that I do. Go look it up on YouTube. It was an SNL skit. And the thing that you just need to understand about the 90s is there was severe anorexia and Toonces the Driving Cat was the height of comedy. 
Those are the two things you need to know about the 90s. <laughs> Zhuo uh, sends us two questions. Three questions. Um, one, say one movie that, if it started screening in the next three months, definitively proves the great music box, music box conspiracy is real. It's got to be Robin B. Hood. No one thinks about this movie yeah. except you and me. Yeah. No one talks about this movie, but if they showed uh, Robin B. Hood, we would know. Yes. Factually, that the music box listens to this podcast for programming ideas, which is funny because despite being members of the theater, we have not been in the calendar year 2022 because, you know, pandemic, the whole thing, you mm. you know, the thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are, like there's other stuff like uh, the taste of tea, but like. Come on, it's got to be Robin B. Hood. Yeah. The the other one is just uh, Angels of the Universe. Yeah, because no one fucking knows what that movie is except for you. Yeah. And now I mean, the people audience kind of, this of do, but like, it. it's also just such a weird get. Yeah. You know? <coughs> You're not going to get Angels of the Universe out of nowhere. The thing of me talking about Twilight and then shortly thereafter they announced that they were going to show the first Twilight movie was so funny to me. That was really fucking good. <laughs> anyway, which movie covered by Stairwell should most benefit from getting a remake in the Pokemon universe besides Face Off? Um, a remake in the Pokemon universe. Hmm. Dead or Alive 2 Birds. <laughs> You know, that would work. Because I'm specifically, you know those, like, shorts they'll show where it's just, like, Pikachu and other Pokemon, and so it's, like, there's no dialogue except for, like, Gengar, Gengar, Squirtle, Squirtle, you know? Yeah. Um, Imagining Dead or Alive 2 birds, but it's all Pokemon, there's no dialogue. Very good. Just good. (laughs) Yeah, that would be good. Um, um, I'm trying to think if there's another. Okay. Funeral Parade of Roses in the Pokemon universe would be pretty good. We could just finally confirm that James is like, got some queer gender stuff going on. <laughs> okay. I need you to do something for me. Can you list the main characters of Cure? It's like the cop, the killer, the cop's the friend. cop's wife, the cop's friend. Mm-hmm. That's like the four main people. There's other people, but those are the four. Yeah. What Pokemon would you cast as the cop in Cure? Um. Hmm. I mean, I I could see it being like I can see the argument that it's Pikachu. Yeah. So Detective Pikachu, it's right there. Um Yeah. Okay, let's let let's not be laborless. Let's do Pikachu. And then I think the killer is I, I'm sort of an old head, so uh-huh. I'm not going like soup. You you and I mostly know Gen One through Gen Three. Yeah. And Gen One most intensely. Yes. But I feel like the thing that makes the most sense for the killer is Mewtwo. Sure. Yeah. Of like, oh here I'm playing or, mind games. Yeah. What if it's Abra? Yeah, I could also see Abra, or I could see Mew. Because mm-hmm. Mew has a certain unassuming quality. 
despite right. being actually even more powerful than Mewtwo. Right. All right. So who's playing so Pikachu's? Maybe Mew. I'm gonna do Mew. Okay. Who's playing Pikachu's wife now? Uh. Ooh. Wh- who who will like add to some of the the tragedy going on there? Cubone. Oh. You you hit me. You hit my <laughs> my heart where it lives. I guess it's Cubone. <laughs> oh, Cubone. <laughs> now you're just imagining your own toddler wearing your skull. That's <laughs> a memorial to you. Um, and then Pikachu's friend. Pikachu's friend. Pikachu's kind of weird friend who always wears ill-fitting clothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Mr. Mime, if you want just like a weirdo. I want something that's like weirdo vibes, but not quite that. Mm-hmm. Mimikyu? Maybe. Or Grimer? Mm. Yeah, Grimer is a good choice here. Yeah. Okay. Um. Last but not least, Joe asks. Well, before you read this, we, we both have one. We can both answer this with a single word. Yeah. We each get one word. Is I'm Lane... gonna I'm gonna put that requirement here. Is Lane mid? No. You should go listen to the question bucket episode of Ghost Divers, which just came out this week. Export odd.io slash ghost divers. That's more than one word. Here's my one word answer. Export odd.io slash ghost divers. I guess I guess there are no spaces there. <laughs> I will give you this. <laughs> Aiden asks, which existing sci-fi movie would you recti- retroactively cancel the original production of and have David Lynch direct it instead? <laughs> <laughs> there are so many. <laughs> Return of the Jedi. No, I wouldn't do that. It's not going to fix it the way people think it would. No. Though Luke would get a dream sequence. Yeah. <clears throat> but it, it would not fix that movie the way that people think it would. Um... Can I go the other way? Can I pick like a 60s sci-fi movie? 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> I was going to say The Forbidden Planet. I mean, I, I love 2001 A Space Odyssey. I love The Forbidden Planet. A lot. 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. But also, the, the, the Lynch version, where nothing is meticulous. Mm-hmm. Where it's just messy. Yeah. And where the weird dream sequence at the end is like weird. Two thirds of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um trying to think of something that's come out since then. Like since David Lynch's career started. I'm trying to think of like eighties stuff. Yeah. But I don't know that I need another eighties David Lynch sci fi movie. What's like a good like 90s thing. There's a, there's a lot of like 90s sci-fi classics. Phantom I... Menace. <laughs> oh god. Oh god. <laughs> Master Skywalker, what are we going to do? Um, um the 2017 Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> There's a, 
There's a. I'm trying to think of like a '90s. I want a '90s Lynch sci-fi movie. And there's just like a, a lot of those '90s sci-fi movies I haven't seen, like Event Horizon or The Fifth Element or whatever. Yeah. Um, oh, David Lynch Fifth Element would be pretty good. Yeah, I had like a gut feeling that like I bet that would probably work, but I haven't actually seen those movies. David Lynch's Mars Attacks. That'd be sure. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Works. Um. Ooh, David Lynch, 12 Monkeys, probably way better than the 12 Monkeys we got. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. That's my, that's my final answer. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to diss necessarily the, the 12 Monkeys that exists. Uh, it's been 10 plus years since I've seen it. I don't have a strong feeling about it. I just think that the David Lynch version of that movie would, would be better. Yeah. <laughs> I think of Terry Gilliam as a guy who is like, Never going to make a David Lynch movie. <laughs> David Lynch's Brazil would also be good. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. like Brazil a lot. But, yeah. like, the David Lynch version would kick the shit out of the real version. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rick says his name is a killing word. Muadib. <laughs> best... Paul Muadib. <laughs> The bit at the end where they're like shooting their guns and they have to say the words, and so like Patrick Stewart's like aiming his little wrist gun and saying, Mua deep, Mua deep. <laughs> I also like the part of Paul where the 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 little girls like uh, Paul Mua deep, and then he's like, Paul is alive, Paul is Mua deep. <laughs> Last but not least, we got an email from Rick who says, well, we oh already yeah, got his name the, his is a name killing is a word. word. That's how question, we got on question. I think Lynch's Dune has the tone and pacing of a rock opera, especially the crescendo with the music at the end. If you had to pick a thing you really liked to make a rock opera out of, what would be that thing? Uh, nothing, because rock operas suck. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thing I really like to make a rock opera out of. The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Yeah. Rebels of the Neon God. <laughs> Another one that would be good is uh, in that in a similar vein would be A Brighter Summer Day. Riccio. Riccio would be a fucking incredible rock opera. In like a that movie would be better way, not in a. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of things that would be entertaining and funny. The thing is, you could take Ricky O as it exists and just tack in like thirty minutes of songs interspersed. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, you you don't have to change any part of the movie that exists. You just have to insert songs between parts that already exist. The is as long as we we can include punk rock into the definition of a, a rock opera. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the live action Nana movies would be better if they were rock operas. Sure. Yeah. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at Fox Mom Nia on Twitter and co-host. You can go listen to my other podcasts. Ghost Divers, which you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an anime podcast. We just wrapped up Serial Experiments Lane. Coming up next is Paranoia Agent. Um, 
Also, go listen to Pondering Puton, where Connor and I read uh, basically a chapter of Puton in a week, but not you read, exactly. It's you the, read a chapter of Cromarty High School. Or yes, a chapter of Cromarty High School a week. Uh, it's the same rate that it was published in Weekly Shonen Magazine, which means there are some where the, like, it was split. Like the page count that he got, he split into two chapters. So those ones will do two, two chapters. But um, yeah. And then we talk about it kind of. It's a comedy podcast. You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at autumnal. You can go to exportodd.io. That'll take you to the Patreon page. And where, you, like on the landing page there, we've got links to all the free feeds of the podcasts. Or for a dollar a month, you can get this podcast early. You can get Gotham City Limits early. Um, hot singles coming back in a big way. Um, just ne- just this week on the Patreon and the free feed, um, uh, Alexis put out an episode about a bunch of live music that she saw with Marcy while Marcy was in London or wherever Alexis lives on that island now. Yeah. Somewhere on that island, anyway. Um, and then I'm given to understand that there's like a little backlog of hot singles that will be coming out over the next couple weeks as they just kind of get back in the swing of things over there. Um, yeah. I I floated a an album to to Boo and Alexis that I wanted to to talk about. So sometime before the end of the year, I imagine I will be on hot singles again to talk about jazz. So, yeah. Um, anyway, um, last but not least for $5 a month, you can get pop town funk, a stupid podcast where my wife and I hang out. Um, programming note next time, uh, we will be talking about blue velvet, um, David Lynch's 1986 film. We will also be talking about Otto Preminger's 1944 uh, film Laura, which is a noir film that is a heavy inspiration on um, Twin Peaks to the extent that Laura Palmer is named after um, the, the character Laura. Yeah, the name Laura for Laura Palmer. Yeah. Laura. There's um, also um, other, let me pull up like the cast because there's some other name that recurs to you. Um. Hey, question. So we had this idea to to do these two things together at a certain point where we were like, you and I were like, we have both seen and talked about Blue Velvet so much for so long that we don't really want to do an episode about Blue Velvet. Yeah. Do... <laughs> we clearly don't need a movie to go two hours. Do we want to just, do we want to split that double feature? I would kind of be happy to just because Let's, um, the way that it is right now, we we'll probably need to watch both the same night, which is a three and a half hour slate ahead of us. Let's do Blue so. Velvet next week. And then after Blue Velvet would be Twin Peaks. And we'll just take a little quick detour through Otto Preminger's Laura that we don't have to take. We just want to. Yeah. And we're going to. So I part of this is I watched the movie, but I watched the movie while building Gunpla and I feel like I didn't give it the full fair shake that I actually should have. And on I, the flip side I felt like it ended up being a lot more interesting than a lot of other noir that I was kind of expecting a more generic noir and I <clears throat> I think there was more interesting stuff going in. And then also it is like notably a a movie that Lynch has talked about. Lore is named after it. Um on the flip side, earlier this year, about the same time that you watched Laura, I watched Where the Sidewalk Ends, 
another Otto Priminger noir movie with largely the same cast um, that I thought was pretty much just a standard noir movie, but a very, very good one of those. It didn't have like a lot going on like under the hood, but it's just a very, very good noir movie. So I'm kind of excited to see this. Um, so yeah, next week we'll do Blue Velvet. The week after we'll do Laura and then we will start in on Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Waldo Lydecker, I think is the one that t- Waldo gets used and Lydecker gets used. Hmm. But I don't think as the, as one. But I think both of those names show up in Twin Peaks too. Okay. Um, but I believe that's the one. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, Vincent we, we know Waldo. Yeah. Shit. Um, we'll be fine. Well, yeah. Next week, Blue Velvet. Um, I think I think we're gonna find more to say about Blue Velvet than we're giving ourselves credit for. When we when when we did this list, we were like, I don't know how much we're gonna have to say. Uh huh. But now that we've like have a clear sense of the project that we're doing, I think we'll yeah. have more. Yeah, I think so too. Even if we don't have much to say about the movie itself, because we feel like we've talked about it a lot, we'll still have stuff to say about like how does this fit into David Lynch and his career? Because yeah. yeah. that's what we're focusing on now. Yeah. yeah, and and Blue Velvet is, in many ways, like the Rosetta Stone to like understanding the rest of what he does from Blue Velvet. Like, it is very easy to see like his first few movies as like figuring things out and then blue velvet is like where david lynch becomes david lynch mm-hmm. um for good and for ill and so that'll that'll be fun to sort of like pick apart <clears throat> yeah what? uh well yeah i guess that's it laura palmer is real oh, shit. It, no it's who killed okokoro no it's who killed okokoro that's a really funny <laughs> phrase <laughs> Who shot Mr. Burns? Okay, Okay,
Oh, yes. I forgot to tell you. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. A desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Fremen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as June. 